JM in the AM. It is a nine days format, JM in the AM. We do have guests coming up later on this morning. Uh, so we will be uh, doing some interviews, speaking to some people who will be uh, joining us. But uh, the uh, go-to, the first stop always on a JM and AM broadcast during the nine days are the lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine. And we are in the middle of, and we're going to actually start again from the beginning, of a fascinating conversation, not a lecture, but a conversation that Rabbi Beryl Wine had recently with uh, Rabbi Benji Levine of Yerushalayim, the grandson of uh, Rabbi Levine. And uh, we uh, committed to playing this in its entirety. I don't know if we'll get to it straight, probably interrupt for our news from Israel, but we will get to the conclusion at the beginning of the 7 o'clock hour coming up. Rabbi Beryl Wine, Rabbi Benji Levine, uh, the uh, conversation coming up. Again, the uh, information regarding Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Shavua Tov, and good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. And uh, you'll be part of a conversation between uh, two old friends, one older and one not that old yet. I'm the older. Uh, Rabbi Benji Levine is an institution unto himself, and uh, we're going to discuss a few uh, ideas and uh, reminiscences, all of which I think will be uh, relevant and important to us. Uh, you're an American originally? Yes, born in Seattle, Washington. How'd you get to Seattle? Uh, that's the first question that people always ask me. They say... The second question is, how'd you get out of Seattle? <laughs> <laughs> that's the second question people ask me. Um, the first question people usually ask me is, how is it that the grandson of Herbari Levine is talks it? with an American accent? Right. So I tell them it's not because I was a good student in an American old pond. Uh My father, Reb Chamiankiv, the oldest son of Herbaria. <clears throat> who was born in Yerushalayim. He was one of the Iluyim of Yerushalayim. My father's Chavrusa, growing up in Yerushalayim, was Reb Shleim Azam and Oyabach. They grew up together in Eitzchayim Yeshiva, right next to the Shuk. And um, twice my grandfather sent my father to Chutzlaretz. Once he sent him as a young boy to learn in Poland. That was very unusual to send the Yeshiva Bacher from Yerushalayim to go Poland. study in Poland. It means felt yeshivas in Yerushalayim. They had to go to Poland. But my grandfather, Rabbi, left his home at a very young age. His uh, dream was to meet as many gedolim as he could and learn from them, and eventually to go to Eretz Yisrael. So on the way to Eretz Yisrael, he studied in some of the great yeshivas in Europe, in Valozhin, by Rabbi Zalman in Slutsk, and by Rabbi Baruch Ber, Leibovich, before he went to Kamenitz. Before Kamenitz. In Halusk. Right. Right. <clears throat> he had to leave. Right. And he had to leave. And uh, nobody really knew the reason why he had to leave. But the reason he had to leave was that you used to stay by people. They didn't have dormitories. And uh, one of the, uh, the people that he stayed by took an interest in him <laughs> as a young man, a very bright young fellow, and tried to talk him into going to study in university. And my grandfather was afraid that this guy would eventually convince him to go to university. But he didn't want to tell Rabbi Baruch Ber 
why he's leaving, because he knew that Baruch Ber would have a kapeda, he would get upset with him. So, and, this, and he had a karasatov, the man he ate by that person or whatever, he stayed by him. So he told Rabbi Baruch Ber that he had to leave. He didn't tell them the reason. But he promised him that if one day he has a son, he'll, he'll send him to study him. by him. So you're the guy. So, no, the my guy. father was the guy. So my father didn't want to leave Yerushalayim. He was very close to Rav Cook, <coughs> excuse me, to Rabbi Sezalman. And he didn't want to leave Yerushalayim. But my grandfather said, you gotta go. it, I got to pay my debt to my Rebbe. You're going to Poland. So one of the wonderful stories of my father was that before he got on the train to leave Eretz Yisrael, he saw some stones on the ground. And he gathered them then together, put them in his pocket, so that wherever he'll be in Poland, he'll have the stones of Eretz Yisrael. Before the train started, he sat down, took out the stones, and started to cry. And he said, Mela, I have to go. Keep it off. My father wants me to go to learn Torah. You're allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael. But you stones, he said, why do you have to leave Eretz Yisrael? <laughs> so he opened the window of the train, and he threw them back. They shouldn't leave Eretz Yisrael. And uh, he spent two years by Rabarach Ber. He was one of his prized Talmidim. And uh, he came back to Eretz Yisrael. And then my mother came from London. Her father was a rub in the east end of London, also Levine. I'm Levine from both sides. Whenever I had to fill out forms as a kid in America and it said mother's maiden name, I always got the form sent back to me, <laughs> underlined maiden name, yeah. and I had to send it back. That was my mother's maiden name. But um, anyway, so uh, my mother came to Eretz Yisrael. My two grandparents, my two grandfathers, had written to each other, corresponded with each other. My father came from Poland. My mother came from London. They were married and lived here for two years in Yerushalayim. And then my grandfather said, take your wife to see her family. She hasn't seen them in two years. To London. So they went to London. And visiting London was Reb Meir Berlin, Bari Lan, uh-huh. the son of the Nitziv, the head of the Mizrahi. And he knew my father because he used to test the boys in, in the, the Yitzchayim Yeshiva. <clears throat> it was a different world then. A different, I told this over to a number of Haredim, all the Haredim. You wouldn't believe it. They said, Rameh Berlin? <laughs> what do you mean? It was Mizrahi. What do you mean? His brother, Reb Chaim Berlin, was a godel. Yeah. I heard from Reb Mordechai Kirschblum, who yeah. I was his assistant years ago, that Reb Yoshiber Salavechik said about Reb Meir Berlin, if you're looking at one of the Gedoyalim of this generation, it's Reb Meir Berlin. It's true. But they don't know him. They know him Barilan, yeah, Meir Barilan. But he saw my father in London, and he, he used to test him. He knew my father. Yeah. So he said to him, I would never tell you to leave Eretz Yisrael, but if you're here, I want to send you to America for a few months. Reb Meir Berlin liked to send young, budding Talmud HaChachamim to Chutzlar, it's Lafitz, Torah, Eretz Yisrael. He was uh, himself <coughs> uh, for a period of time with Yeshiva Shabbat Yitzvah Right. He made the Teacher's Institute That's there. That's right. He was a man of vision always. A, a, a great man vision. of vision. Yeah. So uh, he sent my father. My mother said, go. I'll stay here with uh, my parents. I'm not in the street. And you'll go for a few months. You'll come back, and then we'll go back to Eretz Yisrael. And so my father went. World War II broke out. And for two years, my parents were separated. My father needed to get a green card to stay in America. Uh, Dr. Revel wanted my father to be the boychen before a Mendel Zaks in, in YU. Yeah. And my father was looking for a place to go because the law was, in order to get the green card, you had to travel outside of the States to and an American come embassy, come back. Yeah. He went to Seattle, crossed into Vancouver, came back into Seattle, and uh, became the rub there. Uh, the rub who was there of the Bikr Choylem, 
Sure. He was very involved. Vogelent. He was very involved with the Atzola overseas. My father started as the Russian Shiva. He started you know, his you know, Shiva. Rabbi also ended up. Rabbi Yankov was also. He there. had a million assistant rabbis in order to help them get green cards. That's right. So they were like, this shul had. A, I think at one time he told me Rabbi Wolgalanter he had ten or eleven assistant rabbis, and the <laughs> immigration authorities came to him, and they said, I mean, the whole congregation is two hundred people. <laughs> he, he said, we give individual attention. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, my father started a yeshiva in Seattle, the right. Chaimoise yeshiva. Yeah, yeah. Many of them later on uh, became Rabbi Luban, uh, Volk, uh, and who was the others? Uh, um, there, there were quite a number who became Rabbanim all over all America right. afterwards who, who would never have gone into learning had if my father been, not been at that time. So that's how you get, and so your mother came And my to mother Seattle. two years came eventually over to Seattle. And that's how you came to Seattle. And I was born in Seattle in, in 47, and then in 49, uh, Rav Henkin wanted my father to take a position in Jersey City, New Jersey. Oh. It was once a beautiful community. And um, uh, what happened was, this is a wonderful story. This is a story that I, I told. I just want to tell you, Rabbi Levine is the, gre- the greatest raconteur <laughs> since Rabbi Wine. <laughs> I don't come anywhere near you. Go ahead. But uh, this happens to be a wonderful story that I once told over. And some rabbi told us over and someone heard it in the shul where he told it over. And I got a call from Chicken Soup for the Jewish Soul. Uh-huh. And they said, could we use this story in our book? So I said, Bevakasha. But it's a beautiful story. And um, the story is that my father came to Jersey in 49. The Rav, who had passed away right before, was in, from the old Rabbonim, Rav Bloch. Yes. He was a Rav, not from the Telzer Bloch. No, the different Bloch. He was a Rav in Boisk, where yeah. Rav Cook was, was a Rav. A Rav yeah. And he had passed away. And uh, Rav Henkin said to my father, go drive out for the Shtel. I want you to go there. So there were about 100 Rabbanim who tried out at the time. At the time, it was very, very lucrative. So another story before that story, very shortly, is that they called in the Rabbanim. Everyone had his go at it, his Shabbos or whatever. And then they called a few Rabbanim back. And the Shabbos, they called my father back. They made a mistake and called another Rav also back at the same time. <laughs> so my father saw that the president of the shul didn't know what to do. Yeah. So he went over to him and he said, I see you have a problem. You want me to take care of it? So the president <laughs> said, please, if you can help me. So when it came time for the Rav to give the drasha, my father got up on the bima and he introduced the other Rav. And he told everyone what a great man the other Rav was, that any community that would get somebody like him would be blessed. The man has all the talents and all the abilities. And my father called him up to speak. Well, when the people in the shul saw that, they said, we want him. <laughs> but the story that they told over afterwards was, is a really a beautiful story. The, the Rebetzin of this Rabbi Bloch was an old woman, and she lived in a boydom. It was like three stories up. I know every stair because I fell down the stairs once and I could count every stair. And every Friday, my father would go to visit the old Rebetzin. He would take me with him to see if she needed anything and to tell her what was going on in the community. One Friday we came there. I was a little kid and uh, my father had to go pay a shiva call. So he said to Rebetzin Bloch, he said, do you mind if Benji stays with you for a little while and I'll come afterwards and get him. So... He went, she gave me some soda, 
Her son-in-law I made Friedman soda. <laughs> uh, good sodas. They were the old seltzer yeah, bottles. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, and so she gave me some soda and cookies. And then she told me this story. And she said to me, I, I want you to remember this your entire life. She said, when your father came here, of course it was very hard for me to see some other Rav in my husband's place after all the years. She said, your father came and they chose him to be the Rav. And they brought him in and they told him, we have chosen you to be the next rabbi. And your father said, I can't give you an answer right now. Let me give you an answer in a week or so. She says, and nobody knows why your father said that except me. She said to me, because then your father came to see me. And he said to me, I know that you were always the first lady of the community. It's going to be very, very hard for you to see somebody else in your husband's place. They've asked me now to be the Rav, but I didn't give them an answer. I first came to ask your permission. If you agree, I will go back and take the position. But if you feel in any way you don't want me to be here, I will leave right now. So the old rabbits, and she said, I started to cry. And I said, that you should come and ask my permission. Who looks at me now? Who comes to tell me what's going on now? She says, and you ask me my permission. She said, not only did I want you to stay but I feel as if my own son is taking over the position. She said, only then did your father go back, and he needed the parnasa. And he took the position, she said, and for the first year he didn't sit in the rough seat. She said, that's something, and and I heard it from her, it's something that remained with him my entire life, because that's the type of person my father was. That's right, and and you got that from from your grandfather, naturally. He grew up in my grandfather's home. So how long were you in Jersey City? My father was in Jersey City from 1949 to 1969. Yeah, I remember your father in Jersey City. Really? Yeah. Mm. And uh, I was then in Miami Beach, but once in a while I came to the New York area. I I remember Reverend Levine in Jersey City. But Jersey City was then already starting to... It was falling. It was going down down and down. It got weaker and weaker. Right. And then, so how did you get, uh, you didn't stay in Jersey City. Well, so, no. What yeshiva did you go to in In 69, I went to YU in yeah. 64, to college, graduated in 68. And <clears throat> what happened was is that since, like, around 1959, 1960, yeah. my parents would send me in the summer to live with my grandfather. To Yerushalayim. In Yerushalayim. So now, Yerushalayim. with Rebaria. With Rebaria. Rebaria had a palace, plenty of room. A palace, yeah. A <laughs> tiny little room. Unbelievable. That was two by four. You wouldn't believe if you saw it. I mean, I saw it once with my grandfather-in-law, also Levine, from also Detroit. Also Levine, right, from Detroit. Literally, without exaggeration, the furniture was orange crates. And they were, you know, with just... Uh, the orange crates were a luxus. That's right. That, <laughs> that was a luxury. It was unbelievable. <laughs> <clears throat> so and my father that. always said that the book at Sadiq in our time yeah. should have been written about my grandmother. Right. As great as he was, she was much greater. Because she had to put up with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. She was the woman behind the, the Tzaddik. She was a great Tzaddikist. You cannot be a Tzaddik without a Tzaddikist. No question You can't be a without a Rabbanit. And, no question right. about it. But and, I and came, back, you know, back of every successful man is an astonished mother-in-law. <laughs> But uh, that's true. So what happened? So you so went I, for the summer. So I came in the summers. Now, you got to understand, I'm an American kid. I mean, I grew up in a home. Yeah. My father sat and learned Torah the whole day. There was, you felt in my father's presence, Kedusha. But I was an American kid. It's the 50s. 
I want to hear how many home runs Mickey Mantle is hitting, right? <laughs> I mean, and I go to Eretz Yisrael, I come to Eretz Yisrael, and uh, I know I'm going to live with the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim. Now, coming into his house the first time is something that I will never forget. Because my brothers were there that summer learning in Eretz Yisrael. And I walked into the room, this tiny little room, and I heard all these stories about my grandfather and everything. And I walked in the room, and my grandfather ran over to me. And he, first he met a Shechiona with the Shem. Wow. And then he said to me, what Yosef says when they brought Binyamin to Mitzrayim. He said to me, And I claim that my entire life, any successes I've had in my life, come from that bracha of Chen Elokim Yochne Chabani. I have to tell you an interesting story. I am one day in Los Angeles, and I'm introduced to a very famous Jewish actor called Mike Burstein. Yeah. You know, on the Jewish stage. Right. His, his mother was Lillian Lux. His father was Pesach Burstein. They were very, very it's famous. The Yiddish on theater. Him. So we're talking. We, had, we became very instant friends because of the Yiddish also. Yeah. And he's a Bachinta Heverman. Yeah. So he says to me, he says to me, all my success in life comes from a bracha that I got from the Panevicherov. I said, no kidding. I said, what was the bracha? He said, when I was a kid, he said, my parents, we had a show. He said, I'm on the stage since I was five. He's known in Israel for the Kuni Lemel yeah, series yeah, yeah, and that. Yeah. But he was, he's, a, he's a great actor. He said, uh, I'm on the stage since I was five. I was a young kid. My parents were in South Africa. And in the same place was staying the Panevicherov Rav Kahneman, who you have a yeah. lot of stories, wonderful yeah. stories about. Anyway, he says that um, Rav Kahneman said to my father, Give me this boy, I'll make you into a Talmud Chachem. He said, my father didn't want me to be a Talmud Chachem. He wanted to be an actor. Yeah. He said, but we spent time at that time together with the Panevich Rav. He said, when, we, when the Panevich Rav left, he gave me a bracha. Mike Burstein says. He said to me, that you should find chen in favor in the eyes of others the way you found chen in favor in my eyes. He says to me, Mike Burstein, that bracha has been the key to all my successes in life. And he's not a, he's not a, a religious man. He's a very religious inside. But, um, but he said to me, in my office, I have a big picture of the Panevich Rav. So I told him, my successes in life don't equal yours. I said, but it's also from the same, same type bracha. of bracha that I got from my grandfather. So what did you do in the summer? So I came in the summertime, and I lived with him in his little room. Upstairs, he had a yeshiva, yeah. base Aryeh. And uh, I had an uncle, Rebbe Feil, who was a big tzaddik, Rebbe yeah. Feil Levine. He would learn with me. My grandfather, actually, the first years, in the morning, he would get up very, very early. He would get up to Davin Vasikin in Zoharei Chama. That's the shul with the big sundial opposite yeah. the shul. Yeah. That was the first skyscraper in Jerusalem. <laughs> it was four stories, right? And in it, they had a Vasikin minion where yeah. people would daven very, very early. So he would daven very early, but he never would wake me. He would let me sleep till 8 o'clock. You talk about the Haredim then. Yeah, that yeah. was so normal. Uh, it's something we should talk about maybe. Oh, but yes. but um, he, um, he, would ne- he wouldn't wake me early. But how did he wake me? That was really beautiful. He would never say to me, 
get up, it's late, you have to go to shul, how come you're sleeping so late? Eight o'clock you would say to me, bin yominke, bin yominke. Then David ben Baidain Pate in Jersey City in America. <laughs> when do they David in your father's shul in Jersey City in America? And I would say, uh, about 8 o'clock. So he would say to me in Yiddish, if you run now, you can still make it. <laughs> so I would go to one of the local shuls in Nachlaot. Every, yeah. every block has its own shul. Right. When I came back, he insisted that he make me breakfast. Right? So I would go up to my aunt in the courtyard. I would get some eggs and olive oil. And then I would come down to him. He didn't have a stove. He had a primus. Primus, right. It was like a, a kerosene stove that looks like a camping stove right. that you take on camping. And I would bring him the eggs, and then he would take a little f- old frying pan. He would put a lot of oil in it. And I was already starting to break out a little bit. <laughs> and I said, Zayda, nishta zayfil. And he would say to me, I said, not so much. He would say, nancy, zayel good, zayel good. And then he would show me how to use his primus. Yeah. So it was, it, it, there was a big needle that came with the machine, this contraption. <laughs> and you put the needle into the pipes to make sure they're black. they weren't blocked because uh-huh. they sometimes blew up. <laughs> then there was blue alcohol called spirit. Right. Spirit. Says to me, Melek darain abyssal spirit. <laughs> you put a little bit of this blue alcohol on the top of the machine. You Ooh. light it with a match. And then when it gets really hot, the top... You start pumping the bottom. And when you pump the bottom, the kerosene starts moving up. And when the kerosene hits the alcohol, it goes... And that's what you cooked on. So he would show me this. It was great the way he, he, he lit the match and just threw it over his head. And then, and, um, and then he made me an egg and with matzahs that he still had from Pesach. Yeah. But they were, it was very tasty. And then I, I, would, I would sit down at breakfast and then he would learn with me. And it was so geschmack because he had stories and he, he had a sense of humor. A tremendous You know, sense those of people had a sense of humor. Right. Today, they all became vepers. They lost their whole sense of humor. And, you know, today, if you have a sense of humor, you're not from. That's right. But all these tzaddikim, all these tzaddikim had a wonderful sense of humor. So he would learn with me. He would tell me stories. And, um, and then about 1230, he would send me to Hechel Shlomo. This is fascinating. Why would he send me to Hechel Shlomo? To wait for my uncle, his son-in-law, yeah. Rav Eliyoshev. Right. Rav Eliyoshev was, was on then the, on the, the head of the Bestin, and he had a seat in Hechel Shlomo, Shlomo that had a cheyrim by the brisk, you're not right. allowed to go into the building. Right. And that was his office. The ultra, ultra right, and Mayor Shorim used to bring it up to him sometimes, yeah, yeah. that he sat in Hechel Shlomo. Yeah. But I would wait for him, and I would walk him home to Mayor Shorim. This is almost over 50 years ago. Then he was considered one of the Gedolim of Yerushalayim. Right. So the summers I spent uh, with my cousins. I had, a, I, had a, I had a cousin who passed away. She was a very great Rebetzin. Rebetzin Batsheva Kanievsky. Yeah. She was a first cousin of mine. So the summers were spent with my uncles, my cousins. It, it was a different world. It was, it was just a different world completely. But a world that's very, very dear to me. You know, I have... Uh a story about your uh, grandfather that I've repeated many times. I've repeated it at uh, teachers' conventions. Uh, it's a great story and a great insight. When uh, they marked, I think, the 30th uh, commemoration of the, his passing, so the head of the religious school system here in Israel uh, 
was one of the speakers. And he said, I want to tell you a story about Rebarye that happened with me, he said. He said, I was 11 years old, and I was in an orphanage. I didn't have parents. I was in an orphanage. And he said, we never had enough to eat. There was a period of time in Eretz Israel. It's hard to believe it today. But there wasn't that much food. It was a tzena. It was a difficult time. I remember my father used to send certificates from America, Certificaten. right? Yeah, it's certificates that there were care packages That's here. Right. I remember those. And you those. would go to the warehouse and get, you know, and uh, so my, my uncles and aunts, uh, the, my grandmother lived off of the packages that my father was sending them the care packages. That's right. And I was, I was very disturbed as a child because I wanted to buy an Encyclopedia Britannica. And my mother told me we can't afford it because we have to send to our relatives. And I said, she said, what are you sending? She said, I must have been eight. So she said, we're sending care packages. So I said, don't you care about me? <laughs> That's a care package. But, but, that, but that was, uh, you know, so that was the time. So he said, I'm in this orphanage. And uh, there's very little to eat. They don't give us much to eat. And he said one day for lunch, they had a special treat. They had chocolate pudding. And he said, I love chocolate pudding. So I got in line. I got my chocolate pudding. And then I got in line again to get a second portion of chocolate pudding. And the cook caught me. And she said to me, you know, get out of here, right? You, you already had yours. And I said, I'm so hungry and I love it so. Please give me another helping of chocolate pudding. And she said, no, get out. Leave, me, leave it alone. And he said, in my frustration, I took the whole pot of chocolate pudding and threw it on the floor. Well, they brought down the principal and the head of the orphanage. And they said, well, uh, you know, uh, we don't know if you can stay here with such behavior. But he said, well, tomorrow Rebarye is coming to visit the children here. So we'll present this problem to him. Or whatever he says will be all right. And he said, I didn't sleep that night. You know, they're going to throw me out. Where am I going to be, etc." He said, the next day Rebarye comes. So Rebarye didn't have an office. He sat on a bench in the hall. And they brought the boy to him. And the Rebarye says, sit down next to me. He sits down next to him. He says, uh, did you do what they said you did? He said, yes, Rebbe, I did it. He said, oh. He said, would you do it again? He said, no, Rebbe, I promise you, I would never do such a thing again here. So he said to him, do you like chocolate pudding? He said, yes, Rebbe. So Rebarye said, I also like chocolate pudding. He took out of his pocket two cups of chocolate pudding, and he said, sit down, and together we'll eat the chocolate pudding. And they ate the chocolate pudding. And the man said, that day I became a Jew. Which is, uh, you know, so that's a, uh, a typical insight of genius how to handle a problem. I heard that story from the person it happened to. Yeah. His name was Rav Baharan. That's right. Baharan had a, was a wonderful educator. Yeah. He had Upanad Baharan. And he used to come into my father when he was in Kfar Pinas. My father was in Pardes Yeah. 
And I once asked him, how, how, why did you become a, a mechanic? And he told me this story. And yeah. by the way, I've heard a lot of people tell it over, but I always mention that you told it over right because they say, so Rabbi gave Rabbi you took out two chocolate puddings, right. took one for himself that's and one right. for him. That's right. That's now, the genius that's of it. That's the genius of it. That's and they right. missed that point. Now, i got to tell you something. We don't know what Hersher was on the chocolate pudding. <laughs> They didn't have hexes in those days. <laughs> if it had vegetable shortening yeah, and no gelatin, you ate it. That's right. <laughs> but, but what I want to tell you is that, is that Baharat, he was, he was a wonderful, wonderful educator, a wonderful man. And, and he told me this story, that this story influenced him. Now, I didn't know this story, but somewhere in the genes, I'm not talking about my blue genes, I'm talking about, you know, genes, it, it must have happened because... In 1968, when I graduated YU, so my father was planning to go back to Eretz Yisrael. <clears throat> yes, he told me. Was he, 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 wanted, he really wanted to go from day one. Day one. He never wanted to be he out of Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> so his whole God go in for Eretz Yisrael. He, he once told me, he said, that hey, Jersey City is a gullus, he says, and every gullus has to end. And he said, my gullus is going to end too. <laughs> And he wanted to go he back. He taught himself English wonderfully. Oh, my mother came from London. No, so but she he, but he, uh, he spoke uh, He made rushes in English. Fluently, and, right. fluently. Now, it wasn't true of the older Rabbonim at the time. Nachan, the, uh, Nachan. And he spoke. Roshaniyam Kippur, there were a thousand people in his shul. Right. And his English was mamash beautiful. He you spoke know, a beautiful, beautiful English. English. Now, what I wanted to tell you was, uh, I forgot I'm sorry now. I took you away. I know you're forgetting already now in that. But with Bahran, yeah. With, with, with Bahran. Oh, so why do I say it was in, yeah. So I graduated, uh, so I, gra- I, was in, I graduated uh, YU in 68, and from 68 to 69, my parents were planning to go back to Eretz Israel. So I decided to stay that year and help my parents get everything together. My father had been there for years. And um, in the afternoons, my father would uh, learn with me. In the evening, I started my master's in English literature. And in the morning, I had free time. So my father said to me, the local yeshiva, high school, are looking for a rebbe. He said, go, you'll get the job, and for this year, you'll have experience in being a rebbe. So I said, my father, I don't have any experience. I, I just got my BA. I don't know how to teach in front of a class. So my father said, don't worry, he said, They'll take you. I said, how do you know they'll take me? He said, because they don't have anybody else. <laughs> so it was a real flattery to me that uh, the they're going to take me. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it was real flattering to me that they're going to take me because they don't have anybody else. Yeah. But So I went, and because they didn't have anybody else, they took me. So I came in the first day. This was uh, September 1968 with my Gemara to the Yeshiva of Hudson County, right? And I walk in, and there are about 30 kids in the class. Some of them are bigger than me. And I walk in with my Gemara, and as I walk in and put my Gemara on the desk, a kid throws a paper plane across my desk. <laughs> so everybody's looking at me because it's the first imut, you know, with the, with the new Rebbe. So I, I, put, I had my gemara on the desk. I walked over to the kid. I grabbed him by the collar. I brought him to the front of the class, and I said to him, if you ever make a paper plane like this again in my class, I will throw you out for the entire year. And he got scared. I said, because if you make a plane in my class, you're going to make it right. And I took out a piece of paper, and I made a paper plane, because that's what I did as a kid in school. Right. <laughs> and I threw it across the room, and I said... I don't care what you do in my class, but if you do it, you're going to do it well. 
And I had a year with them that was wonderful. <laughs> now, I just an adaptation to that. I meet in New York last year a guy who's a very big mancal of a company, very successful. He says to me, do you remember me when you were my Rebbe many years ago, 40 <laughs> years ago? I said, of course I remember you. He said, I came to you the first day of school, he said, and I said, I only have one request. I said, I remember, but I let him tell me. He said, I said to you, I just want to get once a hundred in a Gemara test. And I said to him, eh, no problem. The whole year, one test, you'll get a hundred. He said, I promised my mother. I said, you'll get it. We, I didn't know with whom I had to deal because he was a bright boy. But when it came to Gemara, he wasn't there. Dick, he was just didn't help. We made comic books, we made movies, and everything. Shosha Nagachasapara, garnish golf, and didn't help at all. All right, comes the end of the year. He says to me the last week. He said it was a great year. He said, but I will always remember you didn't fulfill your promise to me. I said the year's not over. Two days before the end of the year, I saw that garnish help, and yeah. nothing helps. I gave him a test for a thousand points. He got a hundred. <laughs> so I told him, I told him, just do me one favor. I said, don't tell your mother that the test was for a thousand points. <laughs> I met him in New York about a year or two ago. He says, you know, my mother passed away. He said, but she never knew the test was for a thousand points. <laughs> you got a hundred. <laughs> so how did you get here? So uh, in the summers, I came a few times, spent the summer with my grandfather, and then, oh, one of the amazing times I came here was for the Six-Day War. Uh I was supposed to go to learn in Karen Avna that year, my junior year. I had an old Rebbe, you know, YU had some Rebbeim. Great people. The Doylim, that was so unassuming, if you saw them walk down the street, you would give them a donation or something. You know, and uh, so I had it, Reb Noyach Bornstein. It was the yeah. big, from the big mirror. Right. It was a godel. And he, he walked around, the most unassuming person you can see. So I told him that I was accepted to Karen Biavna, I'm going there. He said, Nein, du wirst bleiben bei mir noch You're going to stay with me another year. He insisted that I don't go. But it was destined that that year I would get there to Israel because the Six-Day War broke out. And, uh, and I came for the Six-Day War. Now, there's a story within a story. When they came around YU and said they're looking for volunteers because everybody was brought up in the army. I don't know if you remember them before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twelve Arab countries going to throw Israel into the sea. It was a terrible they time. They thought it was terrible. The three weeks before were oh, just... Oh, it was terrible. It was the Holocaust all over again. Everybody thought. And uh, so they went around YU looking for volunteers. I wanted to go to Eretz Israel, and it was also before finals. You could get out of finals. <laughs> so, uh, so I went, and I... Um, and then they, but then I, I went to the guys who were arranging this, and my passport was, uh, was up. So they told me, if you go to Rockefeller Center, you can, you can the same day they wired it, whatever, and you can get, if you pay a little extra, you get a passport. So I went to Rockefeller Center, but they said to me, America is advising people not, not to, to go. go. So wear a hat, For don't a wear change. a yarmulke. Say you're going to England or somewhere else. So I went online in Rockefeller Center, and this big guy is sitting there. Says, uh, I said, I need a passport quickly. He said, why? He said, my uncle is very sick in London, and I have to go see him. So he looks at me and says, where do you really want to go to? <laughs> so I said, uh, London. I have my mother's from England. I, I have to go to London. So he looks at me, the guy in Rockefeller Center. He's a big guy. He looks like me. And he says to me, where are you really going? So I figured, all right, I guess he knows. He's yeah. on the big guy. I said, look, I want to go vi- you know, volunteer to Israel and everything. 
He says, step out of line and come into the office. So I figured I blew it. So I go into the office. I sit down. He comes in. He closes the door. He says, you know, we advise you not to travel to the Middle East. We can't stop you. He says, but the reason I wanted to know where you're going, he says, I have a cousin in Tel Aviv. Could you bring him a package for me? (laughs) And I brought him the package. Anyway, Anyway, I came to Eretz Yisrael. And one of the most amazing things was that I, we left the night before the war. Yeah. We arrived in Orly Airport, and uh, some people went back. They had a plane to take people back. We decided we're going. They took us to Greece. Uh, Abba Evan was there and one of the Rothschilds. We stayed in Greece for two days. And then they brought us in the middle of the war into Israel with four Mirage jets guarding us, into the airport, Lord uh, then Ben-Gurion today, gave us flashlights to find our baggage, and they sent us out to different places. I was sent to Kibbutz Chofetz Chaim. So the, uh, one of the, um, there was a member of the Knesset from the... Um, Kahana. Ka- uh, Kalman Kahana. Yep. So he, after they captured Jerusalem, next day there was a meeting in the Knesset. I had got, come there the day before. So he said, I'll take you to your Zeta in Yerushalayim. So he took me to my Zeta. I got there, I think it was Wednesday, Friday, they came to take my grandfather to the coast. Yeah. That was the week of the war. It was not opened. Yeah. And my grandfather took me with him. Uh-huh. And we came through these little streets. That wasn't the big rechava that right. they have today. It was very, very narrow. And we're standing in this narrow street, and my grandfather wanted to make a kriya, to rent his garment, because he hadn't been to the Koto since 48. Right. I had a pocket knife. Yeah. So I helped him make a kriya. Yeah. He made a Shechiyonu. It's two Shechiyonus I remember. When nice. I came the first time, and, and the week of the Six-Day War, with the shame. And I remember till today, he said, He was crying. And he started running to the Kaisel. And it was the streets. It was narrow. And he fell on the stones. He started kissing him. His hat fell off. All the soldiers came to pick him up. It was one of the most unbelievable scenes that I will never forget in my entire life. I have... Uh... You know, I have a, a different type of story, but also uh, I came in the middle of uh, the first Gulf War. And uh, I was, then when you got off the plane, they gave gas masks to the, uh, to the tourists who came. So I get in line, and she gives me a gas mask. And... Uh, I, w- I went to get my baggage, I, and I looked for the first time at the, at the box she gave me, and in big red letters it said, Pasul, that the gas mask is not working. <laughs> so I got back in line, and I come back to the same, you know, Bolshevik, and I give her the gas mask, and I said, it's written here, Pasul. She looks at me, and then, uh, you know... She said, I tell you, it's kasher le mahadrin mina mahadrin. <laughs> and she gave it back to me. <laughs> well, I just want to tell you, you were very lucky, Keith. More people died from the gas masks <laughs> than died from the, uh, from the scuds. The, the, the scuds. <laughs> yeah, so that was uh, Ravaria's attachment. Uh, you know, the famous picture in, uh, in the book is Ravaria feeding a cat. Do you remember that picture? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that was... 
There was a demut. I thought it was Rabaria. Yeah, but I think it's somebody else. No, somebody it's Rebella Lapian. It's Rebella Lapian. And he's, it's so similar that everybody tells me, and I thought it was Rebaria. And then I went to find out about it, and I found that it was Rebella Lapian, the picture with him. Yeah, but yeah. one of the things that I remember as a kid was we used to, since Rebaria's wife passed away, and I came when he was living alone, so I lived alone with him in his room. Yeah. So Friday nights, he would eat with one of his daughters in the courtyard. She had a lot of kids, and uh, also they, they lived very frugally. And, um, and we, w- we would go upstairs to eat with them. And I remember as a kid, one of the fears that I had as an American kid yeah. was there were cats that used to <laughs> jump up on the table in the middle of the meal and grab things. I mean, real chutzpedik as sabra cats. I mean, Yushalayim are cats. And I mean, I had never seen it. And once my grandfather saw, I got scared. This cat jumped up on the table and grabbed something. I remember my grandfather, this is not written in a tzaddik in our time. I saw he grabbed the towel and he ran after, he ran after the cat. It says, Yechaltas Remegze Hagenen. He said, they were real chutzpedik cats. They, they mamish, they were terrible. By the way, one of the things that scared me the most as a kid was I'd come from America. I'd never in my life seen big snakes in the middle of the street. Right. And a few times the first summer, I saw fights between a snake and a cat. And the cats always won in the end. Now, my father told me a story when he was a little boy. He was in the yeshiva upstairs by Rebaria, and a snake came into the yeshiva. <laughs> so my father was a little kid. He runs downstairs and Rabbi was sitting downstairs with a, a, a Yemenite, Mekubal, who lived in the Shkuna. His name was Shimon Nagar. He wore a casket. Yeah. And my father, as a little kid, says, Nichnas nachash la beis medrash. A, a snake came into the beis medrash. What should we do? So Shimon Nagar, this time, and he says, Chaim Yaakov, yesh skula lahavriach nachash me'acheder. There's a special skula that can get a nachash, a snake, out of the room. <laughs> it never fails. Yeah. It's 100%. It works every time. My father's a very smart little kid. He looks at this uh, Shimanagar and he says, what's the schooler to get a snake out of the room? And Shimanagar says, you have to be a firstborn, bring a firstborn, who's the son of a firstborn. <laughs> and if a firstborn, son of a firstborn, goes into the room, the snake the goes runs out. away. So my father looks at Shimon Nagar and says, Shimon, are you the firstborn in your family? He says, yes, I'm the firstborn in my family. He says, was your father also a firstborn? He thinks to me, he says, well, okay. So my father says, Shimon, did you hear what you said? You're a Bechor ben Bechor. You're a firstborn son of a firstborn. You go upstairs. He said, no, I'm afraid of snakes. (laughs) (laughs) That was the end of the schooler. From that I learned that schoolers are good for other people. (laughs) That's right. Basically, that's the rule. Basically, that's the rule. So you had a whole, you still have a career with... uh, my friend Rabbi Tropper with Gesher. Yeah, I started working in Gesher in... What is Gesher, first well, of all? Gesher, Most, basically... Gesher is under the radar. Most people don't know what, what's going on. That's the success. Absolutely. Samoy mina ayin. That's right. I found that the more you get, the more people write about you and talk about you... The, the bigger the troubles. The bigger the troubles are. And if you want to be a mediator between religious and secular, 
which is such a difficult thing, you you're much better off you getting less advertisements. Yeah, right. That's right. So basically, the idea was to bridge the gap. Dr. Danny Tropper came. He was a Talmud of Rabbi Yosheber Salavechik yeah, yeah, right. in YU. Came to Israel after around the six-day war time, and he started this uh, organization called Gesher to try in Israel to bridge the gap between the religious and the secular. And uh, in 1978, uh, I met him at a wedding, and we both had a bracha, because it was a couple where the chassan became religious because of a seminar that I had done for the Aliyah department. He was a young student, and the uh, kala became religious because of a seminar in Geshem. So both of us had a bracha under the chuppah, and he, we started talking. He said, I want you to come in, in, to my house. When I want to talk. So we were talking. He said, why don't you come up to Tzfat? We have a big hotel, the Beit Gesher. He said, I think you would be perfect to run these seminars. Uh, at that time, the OU had asked me if I would start up the OU here. Here in Israel. Yeah, there was a guy called Falk who wanted to give yeah, a lot of money. Right. The Falk Center on yeah, Strauss. Right, right. I'm signed. I know it was, the, it was a hotel that the Sochnut owned. Right. And they bought it, and oh, then yeah, he yeah. bought it over yeah. on Strauss. Yeah. So, um, Ten Strauss. Right. So I had gone to America to see some of the things they do. But then when Trapper approached me, I, I felt I really wanted to work with Israelis. So um, I decided to go up there and see what it was like. And it, it just, it, I guess I, everything from my grandfather, who was really a bridge in Israel between the secular and the religious, yeah. and the home that I grew up in, and the fact that I grew up on a street in Jersey City where I played ball with a goyim, yeah. but I lived in a home of holiness, and the shoe was at the end of the block, and then I came to Yerushalayim. To the, I mean, it was just a mixture of so many things that I, I had gone through in my own life. And in my home, growing up with my parents, whenever they mentioned somebody, they never said, is he orthodox? Is he religious? Not religious. Does he wear a kippah? Does, doesn't he wear a kippah? It always was, at the end, the bottom line was, Elzagute? Is he a good person? And if he's a good person, that was really the criterion more of anything else. And so I, I wanted to work with Israelis, and I went up to Tzfat, and I fell in love with it. I mean, I saw a seminar where religious kids came in, secular came in. They didn't talk to each other. And a couple of days they went through, they started to get to know and talk and learn together. And by Shabbos, it was just one of the most beautiful. It was everything that I dreamed that of. That you wanted. Of seeing religious and secular kids together, singing, talking. Mm -hmm. it, it was beautiful. And I said, I want to be part of this. And I realized that my education was an American education. And in order to work with Israeli kids, I have to know what Israeli kids went through. So I went to stores and I bought up all the books like that kids read in Israel then. And uh, they had all these, you know, hard patkaot adventure books yeah. and everything. And um, I, I bought everything. I read them through in the summer just to learn the slang and everything else. And I came up and I started working with uh, the seminars. And I, it, to me, it was something that I wanted to do more. I lived in Tzfat for a year. It was wonderful. I met my wife in Tzfat. And um, uh, it was, for me, just a wonderful... This is what I would wanted to do. You're to still doing it. And it's 30 years. It's over 30 years already, years later. And I'm still there. And it's, it's opened doors to me around the country. I mean, I visited kibbutzim that are blatreif, you know, and I... Um, and and, and it, I, I, I was able to get to people. I was able to be Masada Kedushin, to do weddings for people all over the country. And because of having 30 years traveled around and, and met so many different groups and everything, it was, 
it, it opened up the doors to me. I mean, I met thousands of people in the last years throughout the country. You used to have, I don't know if you still do, you used to have a show, uh, The Four Faces of Israel. Right. Do you still have it? I, I don't do it anymore. I uh, stopped it a few years ago. I think you would ago. need different faces too yeah. today. <laughs> I'm doing about face today. But uh, <laughs> what, what, what were the four faces well, that then? That show was something that I, I started just, uh, it was, it was, I was up in Sfat. And I wanted to show these kids an old Haredi Yid that I remember, that I loved so much, the old Haredi. Now, to get somebody like that, there's still a few around or whatever, but to bring them up to Tzfat was not an easy thing. I wanted them to see a Chiloni. I wanted them to see a, somebody who intermarried, married somebody who was out. I wanted to be able to discuss these things, to open up a discussion. And an American tourist who loves Eretz Israel and gives money to Israel but, but doesn't come to live in Israel. And so I just put these four characters together with some clothes that I had, and I didn't realize what it would become. So I had the Yudi from Meir Shorem, who was an old-time Yiddel that I loved so much. I had to put the... the uh, yeah, he put his cigarette like he, this, yeah, you know, he, in his, he used uh, his pocket, his pocket for an ashtray. Ash tray <laughs> and that, and, um, uh, and that he, who lights his match. That and, was a terrific, yeah, lighting the match. The match, and it doesn't work, because it was a match that he already used. And he said, <laughs> It worked so good a few minutes ago. It's like our microphone. <laughs> anyway, and then I had the, the Egged bus driver, yeah. right, who was real with his short with pants. Shorts, and his and his cigarettes stuck up his, um, you know, his, in, in his right? T-shirt. <laughs> it's the old kind of Egged driver, the macho Egged driver. Did they wear ties? They wear ties. It killed the whole thing. That's but right. <laughs> I kept doing it years after they started yeah. wearing ties. The older people loved it because it was nostalgic. Right. And the younger people, they, they didn't get it. They didn't get it anyway, so it didn't matter how he was dressed. <laughs> but then I had the Frenchman who was married to a non-Jewish woman who lived in Tzvat. Right. And then I had the American tourist, Harry yeah. Abelson from California, yeah. who gave four and a half million this year, not to mention what I gave last year. <laughs> and he says that about ten times. And, um, <laughs> and it, it just became like a cult show. Really People did. came to see it again and again and again. I must have done it a few thousand times all over you the world. You did it all over the world. Yeah. I did it even in Russia at a time when it was, it was very difficult. And I did it with the, the Yoshev Rosha Knesset in Moscow, Yuli Edelstein, who's unfortunately his wife, Tanya, passed away uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I yes. was very close with them in, in Russia. And people heard about the show in Russia, and they asked me to do it there. And he did it with me. And uh, we did it in front of a, a, in a room in Moscow, in front of like about 35 um, uh, Hebrew teachers. And years later, they remembered the show, and they knew all the lines by heart. The show was unforgettable. It really it, was unforgettable. It, it opened up doors for me. It absolutely. It was a great, great, great idea. What's Gesher doing now? Same thing? Or well, new they still have seminars. They have a, a lot of seminars still going on. And uh, they've opened up a lot of new departments. They have, um, they have a fund now where they're doing all kinds of television shows of young, young religious... Well, they they did a television series. Uh, yeah, they did a television series about uh, a Sephardi family. About Sephardi family. Which won an award here in yeah, Israel. Yeah, but I don't that. think that it really uh, did what they hoped. No, they because would. they did other shows afterwards, other uh, ones that were that were much more talked to the people about Haredim uh, and other things. Uh, and that, I think, was much more This was very them. subtle. It was very subtle because they didn't want to rock the boat. It was one of the first that was done. That's right. But I think it was, the, 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 it was probably one of the first times on Israeli television that there was a realistic portrayal of a religious right. family 
uh, normal with all the problems, with all the goodness, right. whatever. That was the Kiddush. That's right. It was not stereotyped. Right. And exactly. uh, I think that, that, but it was, but that's very expensive to do. It's very expensive to do. And, um, uh, but they tried a lot of different things. Gesha through the years has tried so many different things. They, they tried when, when videos, when people started using all these video games, they came out with about 10 video games, which, again, they never followed it up in that, but they pioneered certain things. They had video games where you, um, you, would, you would have to decide, you were in Europe, where you're going, and decisions to make, where you send your kids to school, where you do things, and then you would go through the whole thing of people going from Europe to America to other places, and at the end, it would tell you what happened to your family as a result of decisions you made. <laughs> they had a show with um, just, you know, like Basar um, Vachalov. Uh, uh, yeah. So they had all these meat products and milk products and this guy eating up all the things. And you couldn't eat a milk product after a meat product or you lost a few <laughs> points. They made all these innovative programs that were wonderful. I mean, I don't know what nothing ever came of them. They made movies about tefillah and Shabbos that were used all over the school systems and that. So they did innovate a lot of different type of things. Rabbi Beryl Wine is in conversation with Rabbi Benji Levine, the grandson of the tzaddik in our time, Rabbi Levine, and a very, very interesting conversation. We'll get to uh, its conclusion coming up after our newscast from Israel here. At JM and the AM. It's a Tuesday on this July 17th, the 5th of Menachem Av. Good morning, everybody. It is the 5th of the nine days. In this case, maybe it would be more accurate to say 10 days, since Sunday Tishabav will actually be the 10th of Av. 77 degrees with thunderstorms today and a high temperature of 88. Tonight, thunderstorms early and a low of 68. And tomorrow, mostly sunny, a high here in New York, 87 degrees. Yerushalayim is at 85 up in Guilford, New York. Our friends at Camp Missora, I believe they've got some rain up there with their 70 degrees as they wake up on a uh, on a Tuesday morning. It was great being up there for visiting day on Sunday. It was really wonderful. So best regards to Dina and Ari Katz and their entire staff, everybody who's enjoying an amazing summer up at Camp Missora, especially the campers. JM in the AM Tuesday, a couple of reminders is coming uh, Tishabov, a uh, a full day. There are many, many, many wonderful programs out there. We are going to be airing a program at 9.15 in the morning from the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island. Uh, that is um, when a very prominent roster of speakers will address Kinnis beginning at 9.15 Eastern Time on Sunday. And we'll continue throughout the day between Kinnis and thoughts about Tishabov. Uh, all this happening on Saxon Avenue in Staten Island this coming Sunday. It's free admission. Everybody's invited to go and uh, be part of it. And, of course, you can see the entire thing at NahumSiegel.com. Project Inspire will begin at 7 p.m. In fact, there's a rumor it might start to drop earlier, but we'll know as the week goes on. We'll let you know. Uh, but right now, 7 p.m. Sunday night with Charlie Harari and an incredible crew. A program that will close out Tishabov. Always a big annual hit. And you'll have it this coming Sunday here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Also, a reminder, there will be Mincha at the Isaiah Wall. There will be Mincha 2 p.m. Bring your Tollison's fill-in at the Isaiah Wall, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue, in 
New York City. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Michael Lawrence of the Jewish Agency is going to be visiting us in the 7 o'clock hour, plus Ambassador Danny Dayan, Consul General here in New York, will be joining us as well as we get ready for next week's Nefesh Benefesh flight. Galit Sal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast next at JMM. יחשוד ברצח אופירה חיים זיכה לברכה אמר כי הוא מצטער ואוהב את הבנות שלו כדבריו מעצרו הוארך בתשעה ימים מסרה כתבתנו עדת שטייף דוד חיים חשוד שרצח את גרושתו אופירה חיים וקבר את גופתה בחצר ביתם הוא הובא היום בפעם השנייה להערכת מעצרו הפעם הביע חרטה בקול כשאמר אילו יכולתי להזיז את הגלגל לאחור הייתי עושה זאת הוא הוסיף כי הרקע לרצח רעייתו לשעבר הוא סכסוך על הבית איתה התנהלותה כלפי אמו הקשישה המתגוררת איתם באותו מתחם. הוא גם סיפר על סכסוכים בינה ובין תנותיה. פרטי החקירה חל עדיין איסור פרסום. כמה עשרות פליטים סוריים התאספו סמוך לגבול עם ישראל בגולן ונופפו בוודים לבנים. כתבתנו אינה אנטונוב. סוכנות הידיעות רויטרס דיווחה כי הפליטים הסורים נעצרו כמאתיים מטרים מהגדר וביקשו שצהל ישמור עליהם. חיילי צהל קראו לעברם שיעצרו כי הם לא רוצים לפגוע בהם. לכו אחורה כדי שנוכל לעזור לכם, צעק במגפון בערבית אחד הקצינים במקום. כעבור זמן קצר הסורים נענו והחלו לשוב אל מחנות הפליטים באזור. ירידה של כ-30 אחוזים בזיהום האוויר מרכבי דיזל כבדים בשנה האחרונה. כתבנו גל חן. על פי נתונים שמפרסם המשרד להגנת הסביבה, 22 אחוזים מכלי הרכב הכבדים במדינה, כמו אוטובוסים ומשאיות, פולטים חלקיקי דיזל מזהמים. בשנה האחרונה נרשמה ירידה של 30 אחוזים בפליטת החלקיקים הללו. זאת כתוצאה מהתקנת מסננים בחסות המשרד להגנת הסביבה. כתב אישום מוגש נגד מטפלת זרה בגין התעללות בילדה בת 12, החולה במחלה קשה, אותה סעדה, כתבנו קובי מנדל. המטפלת הסיעודית בת 46 טיפלה מזה כשנתיים בילדה בת 12 הסובלת ממחלה קשה. התביעה טוענת כי מצלמות האבטחה בביתה של הילדה תיעדו את המטפלת כשהיא מטילה עליה אימה תוך גרימת כאב, סבל והשפלה. לאחר שנודע לה שמעשיה נחשפו, היא נמלטה ונעצרה בעקבות פרסום תמונתה. פרקליטות מחוז חיפה מבקשת מבית המשפט המחוזי לעצור אותה עד לתום ההליכים. הכנסת אישרה סופית את החוק שיעניק לראש הממשלה פטור ממיסים של אלפי שקלים. כתבנו הפוליטי מיכאל האוזר טוב. החוק יעניק פטור ממס לשירותים נלווים הניתנים לראש ממשלה, כמו לדוגמה הוצאות הרכב או החזקת דירותיו, ולא תשפיע על מיסוי המשכורת שלו. הטבה דומה נהנה גם נשיא המדינה. החוק עבר ברוב של 50 תומכים ו-44 מתנגדים. והתחזית, גם מחר, חם מאוד. אלה החדשות שעורך דן דובין. JM in the AM, that's our news from Israel, of course. All right, uh, Michael Lawrence of the Jewish Agency is going to be joining us coming up live in studio here at JM in the AM. First, I want to conclude the conversation between Rabbi Beryl Wine and Rabbi Benji Levine, and then we will move on 
uh, with the rest of our programming this morning. Um, those of you who want information, and a lot of people do, about all the uh, amazing lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine, 1-800, including these conversations, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or to the web, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com for information. Here it is, uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, Rabbi Benji Levine. You're listening to JM in the AM. So you had a whole, you still have a career with uh, my friend Rabbi Tropper with Gesher. Yeah, I started working in Gesher in... What is Gesher, first well, of all? Gesher Most, basically... Gesher is under the radar. Most people don't know what, what's going on. That's the success. Absolutely. Samoy mena ayin. That's right. I found that the more you get, the more people write about you and talk about you... The, the bigger the troubles. The bigger the troubles are. And if you want to be a mediator between religious and secular which is such a difficult thing, you should you're much better off are. getting less advertisements. That's right. right. So basically the idea was to bridge the gap. Dr. Danny Tropper came. He was a Talmud of Rabbi Yosheber Salavechik right, right. from YU, came to Israel after around the six-day war time, and he started this uh, organization called Gesher to try in Israel to bridge the gap between the religious and the secular. And uh, in 1978, uh, I met him at a wedding. And we both had a bracha, because it was a couple where the chassan became religious because of a seminar that I had done for the Aliyah department. He was a young student, and the uh, kala became religious because of a seminar in Geshem. So both of us had a bracha under the chuppah, and he, we started talking. He said, I want you to come in, in to my house. When I want to talk. So we were talking. He said, why don't you come up to Tzfat? We have a big hotel that baked Gesher. He said, I think you would be perfect to run these seminars. Uh, at that time, the OU had asked me if I would start up the OU here. Here in Israel. Yeah, there was a guy called Falk who wanted to give yeah, a lot of money, right. the Falk Center on Strauss. Yeah, right, right. I'm signed on all it was the It was a hotel that the Sochnut owned. Right. And they bought it, and oh, then yeah, he yeah. bought it over yeah. on Strauss. Yeah. So, um, Ten Strauss. Right. So I had gone to America to see some of the things they do. But then when Trapper approached me, I, I felt I really wanted to work with Israelis. So um, I decided to go up there and see what it was like. And it, it just, it, I guess I, everything from my grandfather, who was really a bridge in Israel between the secular and the religious, yeah. and the home that I grew up in, and the fact that I grew up on a street in Jersey City where I played ball with a goyim, yeah. but I lived in a home of holiness, and the shoe was at the end of the block, and then I came to Yerushalayim. To the, I mean, it was just a mixture of so many things that I, I had gone through in my own life. And in my home, growing up with my parents, whenever they mentioned somebody, they never said, is he orthodox? Is he religious? Not religious. Does he wear a kippah? Does, doesn't he wear a kippah? It always was, at the end, the bottom line was, El Zagute? Is he a good person? And if he's a good person, that was really the criterion more of anything else. And so... I, I wanted to work with Israelis, and I went up to Tzfat, and I fell in love with it. I mean, I saw a seminar where religious kids came in, secular came in. They didn't talk to each other. And a couple of days they went through, they started to get to know and talk and learn together. And by Shabbos, it was just one of the most beautiful. It was everything that I dreamed of. That you wanted. Of seeing religious and secular kids together, singing, talking. Mm -hmm. it, it was beautiful. And I said, I want to be part of this. And I realized that my education was an American education. And in order to work with Israeli kids, I have to know what Israeli kids went through. So I went to stores and I bought up all the books like that kids read in Israel then. And uh, they had all these, you know, hard patkaot adventure books yeah. and everything. 
And um, I, I bought everything. I read them through in the summer just to learn the slang and everything else. And I came up and I started working with uh, the seminars. And I, it, to me, it was something that I wanted to do more. I lived in Svat for a year. It was wonderful. I met my wife in Svat. And um, uh, it was for me just a wonderful, this is what I'd wanted to do. You're still doing it. And it's 30 years, it's over 30 years already, years later, and I'm still there. And it's, it's opened doors to me around the country. I mean, I visited kibbutzim that are blatreif, you know, and, I, um, and, and, and it, I, I, I was able to get to people. I was able to be Masada Kedushin, to do weddings for people all over the country. And because of having 30 years traveled around and, and met so many different groups and everything, it was... Uh, it, it opened up the doors to me. I mean, I met thousands of people in the last years throughout the country. You used to have, I don't know if you still do, you used to have a show, uh, The Four Faces of Israel. Right. Do you still have I, it? I don't do it anymore. I uh, stopped it a few years ago. I think you would ago. need different faces too yeah. today. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing about face today. But uh, what, what, what were the four faces well, that then? That show was something that I, I started just, uh, it was, it was, I was up in Sfat, and I wanted to show these kids an old Haredi Yid that I remember, that I loved so much, the old Haredi. Now, to get somebody like that, there's still a few around or whatever, but to bring them up to Tzfat was not an easy thing. I wanted him to see a Chiloni. I wanted him to see a, somebody who intermarried, married somebody who was out. I wanted to be able to discuss these things, to open up a discussion. And an American tourist who loves Eretz Israel and gives money to Israel but, but doesn't come to live in Israel. And so I just put these four characters together with some clothes that I had, and I didn't <laughs> realize what it would become. So I had the Yudif from Meir Shorem, who was an old-time Yiddle that I loved so much. I had to put the... the uh, yeah, he put his cigarette like this, yeah, you know, he, in his, he used uh, his, pocket his pocket for an ashtray. ashtray <laughs> and that, and, um, uh, and that he, who lights his match. That was and, terrific, yeah, lighting the match. The match, and it doesn't work because it was a match that he already used. And he said, oh. <laughs> It worked so good a few minutes ago. It's like a microphone. <laughs> anyway, and then I had the, the Egged bus driver, yeah. right, who was real with his short with pants. The shorts, and the his cigarettes stuck up his, um, you know, his, <laughs> in, his right? T-shirt. <laughs> it's the old kind of Egged driver, the macho Egged yeah. driver. But then they wear ties. They wear ties. It killed the whole thing. That's but right. <laughs> I kept doing it years after they started yeah. wearing ties. The older people loved it because it was nostalgic. Right. And the younger people, they, they didn't get it. They didn't get it anyway, so it didn't matter how he was dressed. <laughs> but then I had the Frenchman who was married to an Jewish woman who lived in Tzvat. Right. And then I had the American tourist, Harry yeah. Abelson from California, yeah. who gave four and a half million this year, not to mention what I gave last year. <laughs> and he says that about ten times. And, um, <laughs> and it just became like a cult show. Really People did. came to see it again and again and again. I must have done it a few thousand times all over and the you world. You did it all over the world. Yeah. I did it even in Russia at a time when it was, it was very difficult. And I did it with the, the Yoshev Rosha Knesset in Moscow, Yuli Edelstein, who's unfortunately his wife, Tanya, passed away uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I yes. was very close with them in, in Russia. And people heard about the show in Russia, and they asked me to do it there, and he did it with me. And uh, we did it in front of a, a, in a room in Moscow, in front of like about 35 um, uh, Hebrew teachers. And years later, they remembered the show, and they knew all the lines by heart. The show was unforgettable. It really it, was unforgettable. It, it opened up doors for me. It absolutely. It was a great, great, great idea. 
But what's Gesher doing now? Same thing? Or well, new they still have seminars. They have a, a lot of seminars still going on. And uh, they've opened up a lot of new departments. They have, um, they have a fund now where they're doing all kinds of television shows of young, young religious... Well, they they did a center. television series... Uh, yeah, they did a television series about uh, a Sephardi family. About Sephardi family. Which won an award here in Israel. Yeah, but I don't that, think that it really uh, did what they hoped. No, they because they did other shows afterwards, other uh, ones that were, that were much more talked to the people about Haredim uh, and other things. Uh, and that, I think, was much more This was very subtle. It was very subtle because they didn't want to rock the boat. It was one of the first that was done. That's right, but I think it was, the, 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 it was probably one of the first times on Israeli television that there was a realistic portrayal of a religious right. family, uh, normal, with all the problems, with all the goodness, whatever. Right. That was the Kiddush. That's right. It was not stereotyped. Right. And exactly uh, right. I think that, that but it was, but that's very expensive to do. It's very expensive to do. And, um, uh, but they tried a lot of different things. Gesha, through the years, has tried so many different things. They, they tried when, when videos, when people started using all these video games, they came out with about 10 video games, which, again, they never followed it up in that, but they pioneered certain things. They had video games where you, um, you, would, you would have to decide, you were in Europe, where you're going, and decisions to make, where you send your kids to school, where the things, and then you would go through the whole thing of people going from Europe to America to other places, and at the end it would tell you what happened to your family as a result of the decisions you made. <laughs> they had a show with um, just, you know, like Basar um, uh, uh, Yeah. So they had all these meat products and milk products, and this guy eating up all the things, and you couldn't eat a milk product after a meat product, or you lost <laughs> a few points. They made all these innovative programs that were wonderful. I mean, I don't know, what, nothing ever came of them. They made movies about tefillah and Shabbos that were used all over the school all systems and that. So they did innovate a lot of different type of things, aside from the seminars. And today also, I mean, we have a seminar in, 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 in Tel Aviv. We had a base medrash with young reporters. Yitzhak Rabin's granddaughter was one of the participants, where they realized a lot of these young reporters today, secular reporters, that they have report no on things and have no knowledge, knowledge of anything of they're right, talking yeah, about. Right. So they were very interested in learning in that. And we had a lot of different programs through the years with the Army, a lot of programs with the Army. And I loved going to the Army. I mean, my Miluim was in the Army. But even after I finished Miluim, I would continue doing all these programs in the Army. Uh, they still are going on. So there are a lot of different types of programs with communities, religious and secular, that are still continuing on. What do you think, uh, you know, in your uh, prophetic vision, though... I, I think Israel, my opinion is that uh, Israel is becoming more traditional. It's becoming more open to, uh, it's, uh, it's less vehemently secular, and that the problem is more ignorance than it is ideology. Yeah, I, I agree to that. I, I wonder, I don't know if anybody ever really uh, um, uh, did a poll about are there more people who are turning to religion or more people falling out? Because you also find in the Haredi community, in the Datila Umi community, yeah, a, a lot, lot of young people who are falling out of the system. And I don't know today, I think there are different times when these I numbers were high, whatever. Even. I think it's probably even. I think even. it may be even. And, I, um, and that's why I say when people say, you know, what's the future going to be? I don't know because I imagine those people who left religion and became secular, their grandchildren are going to leave secularism and become religious, 
and the opposite is going to happen to the other ones. So it's a constant flow of, of, of people going back and forth, back and forth. So I really don't know, but I, I do find around the country that a lot of people want to know. They're more interested in knowing. They realize, I mean, I, I've seen this myself. I was in a shul in Los Angeles, and a group of kids came in, and um, everybody was looking at them, and these kids didn't know when they got up when everybody was sitting down. They sat down when everybody was getting up. And people thought they were non Who are these kids who came to uh, see? And then they found out it was a group from Israel of kids who came. And I tell this to Israeli parents. And I said, when your kids go abroad, do they feel any connection to a Jewish community? Do they know what to do in a synagogue? Did they have, and, and they realize it. And they say, you know what? I would really would like to give my kids something a little bit more. I don't want them to become Breslov, but I, but I would like him to at least be knowledgeable of something about his religion. And so that's a very important area. Very, uh, very important area. Very important area. I, but I think the future here in Israel is, uh, to a certain extent, brighter than it is in the United States. I, I, I like to think so. I mean, the amount of intermarriage in America is over, as they say, over yeah. 70%. And I was in Los Angeles not long ago. My wife and I were talking to somebody there, and he said he's working with Israelis who are intermarrying. Now, that was something you didn't have uh, long ago. 30 years ago. No, and and now you have a big problem. Israelis who come to America, the only thing that really kept them Jewishly was the language. Right. And, uh, and today, their children already speak English. They have no connection whatsoever. So already amongst the Israelis who were going uh, abroad, you have a second generation of intermarriage going up and up with them. So, you know, we would like to think positively and hope that it will be good, but 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 it's not it's not push it. I mean, no, we're living easy. in a world that there very are so many opportunities. Very complicated. Very complicated. Your father was the Rav in Pardeshana. Right. They wanted him when he came back to be the Rav in Yerushalayim. There was a lot of yeah. pressure on him. Delegations came to him, and my father was not a person who ever ran for positions. But then he heard that Rav Zolti put down his candidate. Yeah, candidacy. for Yerushalayim. And my father said, if that's the case, I'm not going. And they said, why? He said, when I was a little boy, I was walking in the street with my father, Rebari Levine. And there was a woman sitting in the street. She was fixing socks. And my grandfather, Rebari, said, the door. why are you sitting out here in the street? She said, there's a light here, and I'm trying to fix socks, to mend socks, so I can make a few grushim, a few pennies, to pay my son's malamed, yeah. who teaches him Torah. And my father said, that woman was Rav Zolti's mother. And my father said, I'll never forget the mysterious nefesh that this woman had. She deserves to see her son sit There's on the, the chief rabbin of Yerushalayim. Uh-huh. And my father didn't go for it. Uh, but he went to Pardeshana. He went to Pardeshana because uh, I had a brother living there. Yeah. And the old Rav Diskin, who had been there right. before, wrote a letter to my father saying... This is a quiet place. I know you're not looking now for any big positions. Here you can sit and learn. People won't bother you. And uh, I guess because my brother was there as well, and also my father's memories of Yerushalayim were Rebbe Sezalman, Rav Cook. Yeah. You know, people ask me about Rav Cook, and I once asked my father, who was the greatest Rav you ever met in your life? He said to me, I said to my father, the brisker Rav wanted you for his son-in-law. Rav Baruch Bear writes... One of the greatest students, Baruch Be'er writes of my father. I said, the Tepliker, all these great Rabbanim of the past generation that held so much from Yolav Yisrael, yeah. who was the greatest? 
He said, that's good. I said, why? He said, nobody had a hekef, a range. The kol In all the different nigla, nister, hidden, everything, nobody had such a vast range Thank like Rav Kook had. And I talked to other rabbonim. It was that, and they say, Rav Kook, Rav Kook, this and that. And not, not because of the second generation, maybe Rav Tzviyuda and the Midachalim and everything. But um, I realized, and I, I tried to explain it, and then I remembered, you once wrote about baseball in America. Right. And you can, your conclusion, if I'm not wrong, was it's an American thing. Right. You can't really explain it. How Gedoyle Gedoylim would ask, what did the Dodgers do? What right. did the Yankees do? That's right. I mean, you know, who, big, big Rabbanin, big, That's big right. Gedoylim. And they were the Yankees, you know, they, they wanted to hear the game and everything, right? And um, it's an American thing. Rav Cook is Yerushalmi thing. Mm-hmm. And my father, who grew up in Yerushalayim, Rav Cook for him was the, the symbol. The epitome of, of Yerushalayim. The epitome of Yerushalayim. And my father also said so. My father studied here in Megazarav in the first years, and he also said the same thing. But uh, like I just want to th- tell you about baseball, right? Yeah. See, growing up in America, we wanted to hear the World Series. Yeah. Right. Now the World Series came out. I remember on Sukkot. <laughs> so once it used you to come out on Yom Kippur, would... and there was always guys in shul right, that, that would go score. out, <laughs> and we didn't know if they went out to get a cup of coffee or whatever. But they came back with the score, and they told you what the score was. <laughs> My father was never one of those rabbanim who got up on the bim and told the people to score. Right? <laughs> but um, but uh, but I wanted it. I remember it came out once Sukkot, and we had a Sukkot in our backyard. And I wanted here, it was the Yankees and the Dodgers. Yeah. And I wanted to hear the game. So we had a neighbor, a Polish neighbor. She was a wonderful lady, Agnes Kamarowski. Okay. So Agnes said to me before Sukkot, because we lived next door, so she knew all the things. Yeah. She said to me, Benji, I know that you're not going to be able to hear the game tomorrow. This is Arab Sukkot. <laughs> she said to me, so I hope your father won't get angry at me. She said, but I'm going to leave the radio on loud by my window <laughs> next door to Sukkah. And I heard the whole game. <laughs> the Yankee Dodger game. Sitting in the Sukkah, I heard the whole game. <laughs> that is an American thing. That's an American thing. But it's wonderful that you're here in Israel. And I really appreciate the hour went like a minute. And uh, should be Matzliach and everything. You're doing great work. And... Uh, Truly uh, worthy of the name Levine in every respect. It's an honor for me to be with you. Thank you very, very much. There it is, JM in the AM with um, Rabbi Beryl Wine and his conversation with Rabbi Benji Levine. Phenomenal, just phenomenal. JM in the AM at 23 minutes after 7 o'clock. Good morning, everybody. Michael Lawrence of the Jewish Agency is going to be joining us. Danny Dayan, Consul General in New York, is expected to uh, be with us toward the top of the hour as well. So I thank both in advance as we get set for those uh, conversations. It is a, a JMN broadcast for a Tuesday on this uh, nine days format Tuesday. There is so much going on as we continue to stress. So many things that are happening. A reminder that today Project Witness presents Roja, their brand new documentary. In Lakewood at Yeshiva Orchas Chaim starting at 8 p.m. and in the five towns at the Young Israel of Lawrence Cedarhurst beginning at 7.30 p.m. Information projectwitness.org. Again, projectwitness.org for all the uh, information. The annual Catskills Nine Days Conference of the United Task Force for Children and Families at Risk 
happens uh, today. The topic is, is giving our children everything really giving them nothing? Children, values, and us with Dr. David Palkovitz, Rabbi Mordechai Besser, Hindi Klein, and Dr. Faye Zakheim. It's all happening today at the Falls View Estate Shul beginning at 1.30 p.m. up in Fallsburg, New York. Information 347-666-3274-347-666-3274. The Tisha B'Av program that we continue to remind you about is happening beginning at 9.15 in the morning right after Shacharis. Shacharis is 8.20 on Sunday at 9.15. Rabbi Elio Sonnenschein, Shlomo Schwartz, and Rabbi Moshe Faskowitz will be explaining Kinnis at the New Springville Jewish Center on Saxon Avenue in Staten Island. It's free admission. Men and women are invited. Thoughts about Tisha B'Av begins at 12.15 with Mayor Simcha Siegel and Rabbi Aaron Raps, and then Mincha will be at 145. Information about all of this, 718-983-8063, 718-983-8063. You can watch the entire program at NahumSiegel.com, and of course you can listen on the website, on the app, and via our listen line, all beginning at 9.15 Sunday morning after JM Sunday. Project Inspire presents We Need You, stepping up and taking responsibility this Sunday beginning at 7 p.m., that might change. It may start a drop earlier. We'll let you know as the week goes on. It'll feature Charlie Harari and the Project Inspire staff. It's free. Information, NahumSiegel.com or radio at ProjectInspire.com. Radio at ProjectInspire.com. That's all happening coming up on Tisha B'Av. This Sunday at 2 p.m., bring your talus and fill into the Isaiah wall. There will be a Mincha service. Again, there will be a Mincha service at the Isaiah Wall this coming Sunday, starting at 2 p.m. This is a tradition that we thought would end, but the needs, the need to speak up around the world and to speak up specifically across from the United Nations is too great. So there will be a... um, Mincha service, Isaiah Wall, this coming Sunday. Again, it'll start at 2 p.m. and go until um, about 2.30, 2.45 with a safer Torah, etc. Make sure you uh, bring your Thomas and Tefillin. Tuesday morning with 77 degrees, thunderstorms today and a high temperature of 88. Lots going on once Tisha B'Av ends. We've been talking about this for a quite a while what this summer looks like and especially the last week in July my gosh it's unbelievable what this last week in July looks like on Monday uh, starting Monday night a Ohad is in concert for Queen Satsala at the Queens Museum will be there on Monday night Uh, yeah the day after Tisha B'Av so make sure you're at the event massive barbecue and Phenomenal concert starring Ohad and the Adidim Choir and the Iron Teitelbaum Symphonic Orchestra. That's all happening on Monday. On Tuesday, we'll be here at JM in the AM, and then our journey begins. Wednesday's JM in the AM will be from the plane with Nefesh Benefesh. Thursday's JM in the AM will be from Yom NCSY, which will um, be at on Wednesday night at Latrun. 
And Friday's JM in the AM is going to be at um, Beit Meir with the NCSY summer programs. It's all happening next week in Israel. We get back in time, Bezrat Hashem, to be at Hask on Hask Experience Day, which is coming up on a Sunday, the 29th of July. You're all invited up to Parksville, New York for that. Uh, Hask Experience Day, it's open to the public. We'll be broadcasting from there. And uh, it should be a lot of fun. It should be a lot of fun. Those of you who would like a shout-out included in the NCSY show, Israel, Yom NCSY, uh, or those of you who would like a shout-out included in the Big Hask show when we get there on Sunday the 29th, email the shout-out with subject line, shout-out. Shout-out NCSY, shout-out Hask. Nachum at NachumSiegel.com, Nachum, N-A-C-H-U-M, at NachumSiegel, N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas, Rav Zevin, Yosef Alevi, and Zechonishmas, Esther Basar, Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. During the nine days, we have the custom not to drink wine or eat meat. However, if one makes a siyum on a masechta, a completion feast, over one of the tractates of the Talmud, then we are permitted to both eat meat and drink wine. The great Reb Chanuch of Alexander was at a suda v'siyum during these days. He said, in days gone by, when these days would come, every person would be upset. Every person would mourn deeply over the loss of the Beis Hamikdash. Bnei Yisrael were sad because their life-giving source was removed from them. However, today we eat and we drink. Hoya hoveviyya. There will be a Beis Hamikdash in the future. There was a Beis Hamikdash, and we know that even at present, there is a Beis HaMikdosh in Shomayim. When he continued, he spoke about the idea that Ashmedai once displaced Shlomo HaMelech. He took him off from the throne of his kingdom. He went to a certain city, and there he revealed himself to its inhabitants that he was a true king. When they heard this, they got everybody together, and there... They started to give all types of foods and drinks for his honor. When they gathered around him, they saw the greatness of the king. They saw who he was, and they were all mitzta'er. They were all sad and mourned over the great Sarah that he was displaced from his throne. Shlomo HaMelech was also very upset. Inside his heart, we can only imagine how he felt. He remembered the days of Aliyah, when he sat on the throne, when he ruled over Yerushalayim, when he was one of the greatest kings that ever existed. And now he saw what happened. He fell from a high roof to a low valley. And from his great Tsar, he could not eat, even though they had brought in front of him so many different delicacies. After that, he came to a city and he bumped into someone. And he became happy and rejoiced with him. 
and the individual was able to comfort Shlomo HaMelech. He was able to tell Shlomo HaMelech that once again, he will be the king just like he was king in the past. Even he is king now because a king never loses his royalty. And even though right now it seems as though that he fell from his madrega, he will be happy and he will be besimcha in the future. He sat down with him and they had a suda kitana, a small feast, for the man was poor. But they ate together, they were happy and they were satisfied. And the comfort and the solace that this poor man brought to Shlomo HaMelech was inestimable. So too in our days, we sit together at a Sudas Mitzvah. The Shechina is together with us and comes to be Menachemas, to comfort us, saying that Hashem Melech, Hashem Moloch, Hashem Yimloch, Lolam Voed. Hashem was king, Hashem is king, and Hashem will be the king in the future forever and ever. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. JM in the AM Tuesday. Thank you very much, Rabbi Goldwasser. It is the nine days format here on a JM in the AM Tuesday as we continue to get closer and closer to Tisha B'Av next week as we keep saying the uh, the journey of a lifetime for, uh, for, what is it, the seventh time, I believe, as we are making a quote-unquote fake aliyah, joining the Nefesh Benefesh trip on Tuesday, a week from today, and broadcasting literally from the plane, as uh, those of you who have been listeners of ours uh, are familiar with. And um, participating in shows with uh, Nefesh Benefesh, NCSY, and then back in New York City on that Sunday the 29th with our friends at Camp Hask. We'll continue to give all, give you all the information. Make sure to be tuned in for some exciting and amazing programming here in the month of July at the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, Michael Lawrence, as I mentioned, who is the uh, Chief Development Officer at the Jewish Agency, he... Uh, uh, he was um, uh, scheduled to be here, and thank God he is in our studio. And I say good morning, Tim Boker Tov. Boker Tov, good to be here. And I didn't realize you were bringing along a very special guest with you, and that's Rabbi Hashi Friedman, who is an old acquaintance of mine. Ne- <laughs> neither of us cared to uh, discuss how old <laughs> that relationship goes back. But, Rabbi Hashi, it's, a, it's an amazing treat for me to see you here, and welcome to JM in the AM. For me too, thank you very much. I think we need a drop of background for our audience, because there's uh, a lot of people I think have heard of the Jewish Agency and don't realize you know, what it is, what it does, etc. In fact, except for the area of Shluchim, except for the area of those who come from Israel under the umbrella of the Jewish Agency to try to give a taste of Israel to people here and attract, and other, other areas of the world, and attract them to consider the Holy Land, in their future. Outside of that, I'm not sure they realize just how large an organization it is and how historic an organization it is. Do you want to give a, a, a yeah, brief 100%. overview for us? Well, good morning again. It's morning. good to be here. Um, listen, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Nefesh Benefesh. Right. Aliyar is one of our central pillars and has been since we were established in 1929. And we're working close hand by hand with Nefesh Benefesh, Nefesh Benefesh day in, day out. So that continues to be a big thing for us, bringing home 30,000 people a year from across the world, uh, a lot from Ukraine and from places of where there is war and where there is um, bloodshed and yeah. fear from Europe as well. Aliyah numbers, especially from France, huge. And we're there to greet them, to help their klita, their absorption and so on. But we're working in a lot of other areas. And in essence, our, uh, our motto these days is every one of us together. And that means that literally every Jew 
every Israeli needs to be part of the Jewish people. And one of the things our people do know is that Natan Sharansky, for I think a period of nine or ten years, was the head of the Jewish agency. Right, 100%. We, we evaluate his term as a good one? Uh, I th- listen, Natan Sharansky <laughs> is a leader and a visionary, and I think there's uh, great things that he did for the Jewish agency, and he continues to do for the Jewish world and the state of Israel. You know, there's things like, you know, the Kotel issue and so on that play, I wouldn't say, well, yeah, it plagued his time at the Jewish agency. Right. And, you know, as we try to create Jewish unity and so on and keep the Jewish people together, that's a challenge. It was one of the challenges. And the Yitzhak Herzogs officially has taken over? Or? August 1st he'll be in, oh. and we're excited about that. He's a man which comes who comes with Yichus. Right, and sure. um, and uh, we're looking forward to his his vision for the Jewish people. One in the of the state first, of the, well. one of the first families of Israel. And you've been with the Jewish Agency for how long? I've been for two and a half years. Michael Lawrence here, Chief Development Officer, and you have Rabbi Hashi Friedman with you, and that's because Rabbi Friedman's role is Rabbi Hashi's role is actually he's the director of education for a remarkable program in the IDF. We've got tens of thousands of folks in Israel who end up in the IDF but are not halachically Jewish. And that creates a challenge. Tens of thousands? Well, over the years, yes. Wow. And uh, every one of us together, we want to make sure that those people feel part of the Jewish people and feel or even, as Hashi will explain, have an opportunity to become part of the Jewish people if they so wish. How How long have you been doing this? I've been doing this for 17 amazing years. And wouldn't you agree that in addition to the tens of thousands that Michael just spoke about, there are also members of the Jewish faith in the IDF that also need strengthening when it comes to their Jewish tradition? As a matter of fact, uh, one of the chiefs of staff, Gabi Ashkenazi, came sure. to visit our Nativ program, which I'm going to describe. Nativ's the name of the program. Right, Nativ. And uh, he said, you know what, I really wish we had the budget that every single soldier in the IDF would do this program. Amazing. And by the way, over the years, we've had uh, kids who joined Nativ uh, way back then when they allowed Olim. And now it's mostly for people who are not Jewish halachically. And there are kids who grew up in New York in a modern Orthodox world, had the same education I did, MDS, MHS, all that stuff. And they said, you know what? What I went through here in six weeks was more powerful than what I went through in high school in four years. Right. So we think we're doing something very special. Yeah, we tend not to pay much attention in high school to academics. But <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, my teacher always told my mother that I spent too much time looking out the window, and I was going to reinvent the steam engine, so, <laughs> there you, there you <laughs> which go. I didn't do. There's, the, a, there's yeah. a vote of confidence. Right, yeah. Um, so, and I saw the video. I, I got an idea of how this works. It is remarkable and incredible. Uh, I, but I would assume the first step is to identify who would have a question mark over their Jewish background, right? Who might not have a Jewish mother, who might be, you know, the result of, of questionable conversions. All, all this stuff right. seems complicated to, to a regular American guy like me. If you think it's complicated to you or even complicated to us, imagine being called into the IDF, thinking you're Jewish, right. coming from a family that you see as Jewish, keeping the Jewish holidays, and suddenly finding out through a bureaucratic piece of paper that you're not Jewish. Right. And that's, and that's the majority of these cases? I'd or? say a large percentage. Others know from when they're kids. Uh, it's, it, it varies. Um, but let's go a step backwards because I'm here also to say thank you to our, to our listeners who were involved way back when. You know what I'm talking about in the Free Soviet Jury Movement. Sure. And we were out there in the 70s and 80s. You know, Dag Hammarskjöld Plaza. One, two, three, four. Open up the iron <laughs> door. Five, six, seven, eight. Let me people emigrate. What do you want? Freedom. What do you want it now? Right. And we were involved. We worked the in mission in Riverdale. In Riverdale right. and uh, in the Soviet mission down sure. on 67th Street. And sure. some of us are also involved in JDL. Got in a little right. trouble, right? right? Well, it worked. And so firstly, I'm here to say thank you. 
to the American Jewish community and to especially those modern Orthodox listeners who did so much to get one million Jews home to Israel. As Yirmiyahu writes in Ovobalmi Eretz HaTzafon, they came. The problem was that when they came to Israel, no one thought there was going to be a problem that we had to deal with, which is that one-third of them were like a soldier called Michel, who grew up in a Ukrainian village with a Jewish father and a non-Jewish mother. And this was very common after communism, assimilation, right. pogroms, holocaust. Every effort was made by the Soviets to wipe out Jewish identity in Hebrew. And so Michel grew up with this uh, anti-Semitism that permeated the village, his non-Jewish mother wore a Star of David and defended the kids from anti-Semites. She's the one who told them to keep the Jewish holidays. She's the one that made sure they don't lose their Jewish identity, like Ruta Moavia. Right. Long comes someone from the Jewish agency in the 90s, under the law of return where anybody who has a Jewish grandparent who would have been killed by Hitler is welcome to come home and become citizens of Israel. Michal comes home, gets off the steps, and what did you tell him? Oh, welcome home, Michal. Just a small detail. There you are a Jid, a Jew. Here you're a Goy. And that's the type of kid that we get thousands of every year in the IDF. And it was decided to start the Natif program when a guy, yeah. No, I'm just going to say, though, to us, that seems more like a clear-cut case. In other words, that doesn't help Michael, but we we know what our tradition says about Jewish motherhood. Exactly. Exactly. There must be, though, so many safek, so many... You know, there are many suffixes. One in the in this when the kids come to the to the program in the IDF to study Judaism and Zionism, one of the first things we do is we work with them on checking out their background uh. with a with an organization called Shorashim, and that organization for free will even go to former Soviet Union, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, all these places, and see if they're Jewish or not. So, so you try to determine. You do what's okay. called the Birur Yahadut, right? They don't always find out, right. and that's very painful. So right. there are many who have to do Giyur, Geras, conversion, because they're not sure, even though they know they're Jewish. But you're not, and you're not exclusively dealing with those from the former Soviet Union. There are other people around the world. 85%, correct. Okay. We have from America, we have Ethiopia, we have Argentina, right. we have Finland, right. we have Philippines. And everything. before you tell us about Nativ, and, and it is a worthwhile program to explore, I, like I said, I, I saw the video and I have a little bit of insight into how critical it is, but before that, I'm sure everybody listening right now <laughs> needs to know, like I do, Correct. what the relationship is between you and the Rabbanut, and you and the Eida Haredus, and you and Badatz, and you and all those who feel that they have a say in, in what these people, these amazing soldiers who are ready to give their lives for Israel and the Jewish people, who allow us to live in luxury here exactly. in America, exactly. you know, I'm sure they want to know what the They're story is. They're watching over us. The Nativ program has Bate Din, conversion courts inside the IDF, which in which every conversion gets a signature of the Rav Rashi of Yitzhak Yosef. And when there was a controversy a few years ago about whether this giyur is good or not, Rav Ovadi Yosef himself, Allah Shalom, is the one who gave the okay. So in that respect... It's considered a very good—the reason that so many soldiers do this conversion is because it is, uh, it is, is a, a, a given a recognition by the state of Israel and because it allows them by law, Israel law, to get married to another Jew. What percentage do it? About one-third of those who start the program end up doing Orthodox Europe. Mm-hmm. So there's still a majority that— uh, Yes. Well, that... Many of them who don't convert now because— Right. Again, you're asking about the Giyur. Yeah, how good is it? The very fact that, so many, that only one-third make it— says how strict it is, and it's very strict, it's very difficult, and we help them through it. But the two-thirds who don't, often they end up in our, later on in our civilian classes doing conversion, or they end up perhaps making sure their kids do it later on. The, but we reconnect them. The conversion or the, or the bet in that uh, you just mentioned, Rabbi Yosef, would be 
uh, okay with. Would you know, he personally signs that, every that certificate. That he approves. Yeah. Would that be acceptable, for instance, at a Rabbanut? Absolutely. It would be. Absolutely. Would be. So that the, all those questions. That's why they do it. Right. Yeah. So the general, how do I put this, the general middle-of-the-road Orthodox stream in Israel would recognize them. You know, there, may, there may be others that Absolutely. have problems. but the, There always will be. Right. <laughs> and I did conversions that. when I was a rabbi in Palm right. Springs. I'm sure there's plenty of rabbis who would accept that. Right. Wait, but always, and this is only philosophical. I don't want anyone to think that I have any expertise in this area halakhically. I do not. But philosophically, when you hear about someone who's given their life in the IDF and now will not be buried in a Jewish cemetery in Israel or an IDF cemetery in Israel, or you hear about somebody, again, who is completely committed to the Jewish people. Again, I'm no expert, and I can't interpret the Torah, but I think our tradition is, is somewhat friendlier to those who make a commitment to the Jewish people than, than many people think. Would that be accurate? That is accurate, and uh, we see it happening when there's a war. So, for instance, we, right. had, we had a soldier called Peter Ochotsky who served in actually the same uh, battalion of the paratroopers that I served in in 202, and he went through our whole program— and he, was, he had passed the Beitid. All he had left to do was to get a Brit Milah and to, uh, to go to the mikvah. He went to the Second Lebanon War. His girlfriend was going to marry him, his Jewish girlfriend. She said, don't go, because if you do a Brit Milah, you can get 30 days off. You won't have to go. And he says, everything I did until now was to defend this people. I'm part of the people. And he went to the war, and unfortunately, he was killed in combat. After he was killed, he was buried as a Jew. By Rabbanut Atzvait, by the, the Israeli idea for Abinet, because of exactly what you said. He so, publicly made a commitment to exactly. be a member. Of, right. He may not have had exactly the conversion in the exactly. traditional sense. There are sense sources of, in Halakha right. which, which also point to this, absolutely. <sighs> okay, uh, Michael Lawrence is here, Bechashi Friedman is here. All right, so now we come to Nativ. Right. It, it seems to me a comprehensive, uh, you said earlier, you know, in a few weeks, with, with you getting right. four years of high right. school or more. Right. It, it, and, and what was remarkable to me is seeing how the students really gravitate to it. Like, right. they want to know right. about our tradition. They want to know about safe abrasion, and I mean the entire safe abrasion, not just creation. They want to know about safe abrasion. They want to know about our tradition and culture mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, religious culture and Israeli culture. They want to know about the uh, different, uh, you know, halachot that guide, whether it's kashrut or something else, that guide, you know, everything that goes on. I would think many of them would be either resentful of it or would roll their eyes at it, but it seems that they're engaged when it comes to this stuff. Excellent what you said, because many of our soldiers come to us with a tremendous amount of pain and tremendous amount of anger, that they feel rejected, they feel they're second class, even though they want to be part of the Jewish people. Many of them, the second generation, grew up as Israelis and keep the Israeli holidays and all those things, and they come with a lot of anger because says, who are you to tell me of that course. I'm second class? So what we do in Nativ is we don't just teach them. We show them how much we love them. We tell them how much we appreciate them. We tell them how much they are our heroes. We're not doing them a favor. They're defending us. When I walk into a class of soldiers and say, and say, thank you for watching over us. I finished reserve duty years ago. I say, thank you. One of, her, one of the soldiers, she started to cry. And I asked her, why are you crying? Because nobody ever told me that before. Mm. So that's the first thing in that team. They get a big hug from us. And we tell them how much we love them. Besides that, what we do is we try and teach them Judaism. They learn Tanakh, Jewish history. Uh, Emuna, philosophy, Shabbat, Kashrut, Brachot. They do field trips. They do Shabbat together. They do Shabbat at host families. They do a roots project. I'll give you two examples of what works there. When we teach them about Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest Jew that ever lived, they say, Moshe Rabbeinu was just like you. He grew up in a non-Jewish house. <laughs> and he tried to come back. 
And he tried to be a combat soldier. Right? And then he told him, Go back to where you come from. We don't want you. He went to Yitro, the non-Jew. And he married Sipor, the non-Jew. Then he came back again and again. And finally became the greatest Jew. He said, Nativ is a place where you as soldiers learn that most of the greatest Jew ever lived is like you. Or Ruta Moaviyah, who is the great-grandmother of, um, of, of David HaMelech. And another example is our Shorashim Roots Project. We tell our soldiers, you have an assignment to... Uh, explore where you come from. You show them the movie Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> and they see that candle lighting scene, mm-hmm. and they have no idea. Da 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 da. Sure. They have no <laughs> idea that the little girl they're looking at, watching her mother light candles in the shtetl two hundred years, it could be their own great 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 grandmother. So when they light candles for the first time, they're coming back home. We had an example of a, 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 a someone called Eden who should have been in the show with me, but she couldn't get a visa in time, and uh, she she explored her family. Turns out, this so-called non-Jew who came into the IDF has a great-grandfather who was a hero in a Minsk ghetto in 1943 and was killed because he went out of his bunker to pay his non-Jewish employees the salaries he owed them. That man's grandson, Edward, fell in love with a non-Jew. And they told him, you're not marrying a non-Jew, we're taking you to Israel in 1992. Seven months later, he says, I'm going back because I love Olga. And he brought her back, and she said, where you go, I will go. He brought her back with her Christian grandmother. And their daughter, Aiden, went to our Nativ program and reconnected to the mitzvahs and to the Torah and to Eretz Yisrael. And this is what we do. We are closing a circle of Jewish history. We all prayed for them to come home. They came home, and it's amazing. Now now let's welcome them and treat them like brothers and sisters. Amen, amen. Michael, how do people find the program? Is it required in the IDF? Is it like, how do the... What's the uh, what's the procedure of how this works? Well, first of all, they're uh, they're receiving these letters. But what's very interesting is that uh, Defense Minister Lieberman, Avigdor Lieberman, has just announced in the last week that the Israeli government is going to invest eight million shekels. You decide the exchange rate for the day, <laughs> right? Um, to reach more people through a major effort on the internet and through social media and so on, so more chayalim, more soldiers know about the program. And can join the program. That's so they're not required to join it. They're offered it. They're offered there are it. no soldiers required to Absolutely go Absolutely not. You can't do that. So and and if it was required, it wouldn't be the same Correct. thing. So they're offered it, and nonetheless, you have such amazing attendance. Right. We have about 75% of the potential to come every year. Pretty amazing, I'll tell you. Um, and this expansion will do what? It will simply make it available to more and more It, it will increase the numbers. Right. 100%, which is important. Um, and it succeeded with that. We have a civilian program as well, which Hashi can explain further, with folks who have already passed the age of the army can also join classes, night classes, during the week and do a conversion and as that's, well. And that's important because, the, for the same reason, that you, just just like the soldiers, regular citizens who are in the same background type sure. of situation. And I walk into one of those classes and say, how many of you were native and couldn't do it there? And many of them raised their hand. When do they come to the civilian conversion class? When they want to get married. Right. See, so... You know, it, it goes on and on, and that's acceptable if they're sincere in the in the study and if the, they in pass the, the baiting, absolutely right. The baiting is very strict. Right. The baiting is not going to allow them to to just you know to to get a con, a conversion you know willy nilly so to speak. They're no, gonna, they're, it's not willy nilly at all. They're going to yeah. make sure that it's right. the the course absolutely. and uh, and that they go through it properly. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. So this is a um, th- and this I assume, and again coming back to our original premise. Like all the Jewish Agency projects, is funded by the State of Israel, correct? I mean, that's essentially how it works. Well, the Jewish Agency is a receives some very significant funding from the government of Israel, but we are also receiving significant funding from the Jewish federations in North America and oh. from ph- philanthropists 
from across North America, also from Karina Yassad. So are there, um, in, are there individual philanthropists who specifically support Natif? Yes, 100%. From the United States? Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So and some foundations and so on. And that's part of the reason we're here because right. as we see expansion – and, you know, we're all agreeing here that this is a very critical program for Am Yisrael and for Medinat Yisrael. You know, we're looking for more partners, and that's part of the, part so, of the conversation. So, Reb Chashi, if, if, a, if a philanthropist was sitting here and said to you, you know, why is it important I support Nativ, what, uh, what would be the short answer? The short answer would be that uh, we brought them home, we, the American Jewish community, right. and we owe them because they are watching over us with their lives. And when we land in Israel to visit on an El Al plane, and there are soldiers watching over that plane, that's often them. Yeah. And I, of course, always extend that even further, which I think you agreed with earlier in this conversation, that when we sit here in luxury, it's only because of the Israeli soldiers that are, that are, that are in Israel, including Absolutely. yourself, who was right. obviously you know, right. in the military. They, they are our heroes, and that's what we tell them. Our heroes and our, and our safeguard. Absolutely. We don't just admire them in this, right. you know, in this grand... You know, spiritual way. They, and by the way, I was once in Pene, I always tell the story. I was once in Pene Kedem huh? when there were, I don't know how many people are in Pene Kedem now, because then there were like seven. <laughs> you know, like, I think you have like tens you know, of families. Are families you serious? Yeah, are yeah, there tens? Think, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So Pene Kedem at that time was literally, you know, seven trailers right. and, and seven soldiers. You know, they uh, had to, Right, right, sure. So, so I go over because they had an obligation to protect whoever's sure, there. Sure. So I go over to the soldiers and I said, this was back in 2006. I said, I want to thank you. It's because of you right. that I'm able to live in right. Manhattan. And they looked at me like I was nuts. <laughs> but I want to tell you, they may have looked at you were nuts, but you definitely reached their heart. I guarantee you it very very much moved them when you told them that. That they're sitting in Panek Hedem. Absolutely. Day and night, 24 hours. Absolutely. Because you know that the, that area, especially then, could have been sure. the, the target of terror attacks. Absolutely. and somebody, you, you know the neighborhood. Sure. I don't have to yeah. tell you. Yeah. And this is what I said to them. They didn't get it, but boy, is it true. And, my, and I've been trying to tell them, my listeners this for decades, that it's only because of the Israeli soldiers that we are able to survive around the world, that's for sure. And the, this painful thing that I brought up earlier, it, I'm glad to hear that in some ways being dealt with. But when we heard that soldiers who had given their lives, you know, the question was where to bury them. Correct. And I'm like, if in- you should know that the IDF Rabbit makes tremendous efforts both in terms of halachic research and, and the reality of the burial itself, to bury the non-Jewish soldiers in such a way that it's almost unnoticeable the difference. But nevertheless, they do know. Right. And that's very, very, very painful. We've had soldiers that they want to be buried next to my friends. Right. Not easy. Their own friends. Not easy. They want to be buried next to their Not own easy. friends as well. Um, all right, Michael. Uh, what do you want to tell our listeners? Well, how, do they, uh, how do they go ahead and find out more information? How do they see the video I saw? How do, how do they get involved and check out Nativ and consider supporting them? Well, first of all, I'd invite them to be in touch with us, uh, 100%. Uh, we have actually been visiting communities. We uh, Last Shabbat, we were in Vacation Village ah! in the Catskills. That's, and uh, wait, I was there last Shabbat. This past two days ago? No, no, no. Uh, uh, nine days ago, oh, 19 okay. days ago. I was we, there this past Shabbat. Right. Last ah, <laughs> too bad. We could have drunk whiskey together. <laughs> so we had, we had a great Shabbat there, and Hashi was... I see certain things from high school. Hashi hasn't given up. <laughs> Not at all. It only gets worse with time. <laughs> Ask my wife. She says whenever she calls me at the office, we're either laughing or crying because of the emotions developed in our work. She says, do you guys work at all? Right? So, oh, we drink whiskey in between. <laughs> Depending on the situation, right? <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, so we've been out and we're, we're working in communities. We're meeting folks. We were in Vacation Village this Shabbat. We now we were in uh, Long Beach and Lido oh, Beach wow. nice. at, at three shuls there. Hashi is um, 
Listen, Hashi is bringing real stories. He gets the message across, huh? Yeah. Well, these are real stories. These are real IDF soldiers. These are real people looking for a search. They're searching. They want to come back to Torah Mitzvot. And there's something. There's that spark inside. And thank God the Jewish agency is able to be that journey, that journey mentor for them. Can people who are not radio announcers access that video? Because I think that video is very important, the, the one you sent me. Uh, that- yes, it is on YouTube. What if they it? type in Nativ oh, IDF, simple as that. Jewish agency, they'll be able to find it. There's a couple of videos there, a longer one and a shorter one. Great. They should bring tissues because yeah, it's uh, it makes heart. the tears run. And uh, they can be in touch with us either through the website jewishagency.org or they can email me directly if they, if they want as well. Michael L, that's M-I-C-H-A-E-L, and another L uh, at jaffi, J-A-F-I.org. Excellent. Happy to hear from people. Kalakavo to both of you. I thank, thank you Michael Lawrence, Chief Development Officer at the Jewish Agency, and of course Rabbi Hashi Friedman, who is doing quite a job with Nativ. You've, uh, you've. It is a good time of year for you to have been here, because during the nine days we're supposed to care even more for our brothers and sisters. Right? This is the time time of year where we really need to step up the love between us and our brothers and sisters. And thank God, as you described it, this is one way that uh, that we in fact are able to do so. This is a time of year where we look again at these soldiers. I have a picture you can't see, uh, listeners can't see, of three of our native soldiers who are paratroopers recreating the famous picture from 1967. That wall saw their ancestors exiled 2,000 years ago, and now they have come back to watch over the wall for over us. No matter what their background is. Exactly. Tadaraba, thank you so much. Thank thank nice you. to see you again. Yeah, great to see you. Best regards to all the old guys you see in Israel. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> there you go. Michael Have Lawrence. a good day. Thank <laughs> you. A pleasure. Michael Lawrence, Rechashi Freeman. More coming up in a nine days format Tuesday at JM in the AM. <laughs>
much AM in the AM on this uh, Tuesday. Uh, yeah, we used the um, acapella al as a little buffer there because we were anticipating that Danny Dion would join us at the top of the hour. I, I certainly hope he still does. Uh, he is scheduled for 8 o'clock, and hopefully he'll join us. My thanks to both Michael Lawrence and Rabbi Hashi Friedman. Incredible work being done in Israel. So we'll take this uh, quick musical break and uh, be back with more at JM and the AM. J.M. and the A.M. Tuesday. Well, many of you are aware of the fact that one week from today we will be on the plane. We're actually going to be broadcasting from the plane when Nefesh Benefesh leaves from New York with hundreds of uh, North American Olim uh, to uh, Israel. And one of the people that has been so instrumental, outspoken, working hard on behalf of Aliyah, is uh, our guest who's with us live via telephone. Danny Dayan is Consul General of Israel in New York since the summer of 2016. He is with us live via telephone on this Tuesday morning. Consul General Dayan, welcome back to JM in the AM. Do we have him there? Oh, I apologize. There he is. Consul General Dayan, welcome back to JM in the AM. A pleasure to be with you. I appreciate that. I want to start with uh, some current events, if I may. I was... Frankly, I was uh, glad to see that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu felt that in the meeting between President Trump and uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, when it came to Israel, President Trump, quote-unquote, had Israel's back when it came to Israel's role in the region. was curious what your impression was of the summit vis-a-vis Israel. Well, the same. I think that the fact that the two leaders of the two uh, Greater, greatest powers in the world uh, convene uh, and talk about uh, the need to assure Israel's security is a great achievement, a great diplomatic achievement of Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, that nurtured his relationship with both, with President Trump and President Putin. Uh, he just met President Putin a few days ago in Moscow. Uh, he has constant uh, uh, connection with uh, uh, with the channels of communication with President Trump, uh, and it bear fruit. It bear fruit in that summit in Helsinki, in which the need to assure Israel's security vis-à-vis the situation in Syria uh, and other developments in the area uh, was one of the main issues on the table. It is pretty amazing that that Israel continues uh, uh, to be, so to speak, in the news when it comes to these high-profile meetings. But then again. Uh, you you are a consul general here in New York at a time, uh, at a very interesting time in Israel's history, when it seems that every country, large and small, I shouldn't say every, but you get my point, all, all these countries, large and small, are trying to court Israel, are trying to uh, 
uh, to visit Israel, to get meetings with the prime minister and others, to get the latest Israeli technology, to to go out of their way to tell the world that they are friendly with Israel. Uh, wouldn't you say that it's a pretty remarkable era in that way? Yeah. Uh, look, uh, Israel was never uh, stronger than now. Israel was never uh, prosperous than now economically. And Israel never had better uh, diplomatic relations uh, with the countries of the world uh, than now. And, uh, you know, uh, remarkable is also the fact that uh, just a few days ago, I think it was the uh, U.S. News and World Report, uh, ranked Israel as the eighth uh, um, most powerful country in the world. Powerful not only in the sense of uh, military power, in a combination of military, economic, and diplomatic uh, strength. Israel was ranked eighth after, uh, I would say, the seven, the seven big countries of the world, the USA, Russia, China, um, Germany, France, UK, and Japan. The next country is tiny Israel with barely less than 9 million people, 9 million uh, inhabitants. That is pretty remarkable. I must say that the achievements of Israel in its first 70 years of re-existence are uh, miraculous. It is remarkable, is right. Ambassador Danny Dayan, he's Consul General of Israel in New York. Well, as we mentioned, and I believe you're going to be there Tuesday at Kennedy Airport when Nefesh Benefesh again takes a charter flight. Hundreds of people moving in July, hundreds more coming in August from Israel, from the, the New York area and all of North America uh, to Israel. It's remarkable the stage they've gotten to at this point. And you've now been in the New York area uh, about two years. Uh, I, I would guess you actually know people at this point from this region that will be on these summer flights uh, and moving to Israel permanently? Uh, very probably. Actually, I didn't see the list, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, if uh, th- th- there is one task, uh, one obligation, uh, the Consul General of Israel uh, can never uh, disregard, and it is to encourage Aliyah to Israel, Jewish Aliyah to Israel. I see it as uh, one of my uh, important missions to do it and to encourage it. Um, that's the that's the essence, the gist of the Zionist uh, ideal. And uh, I will be there. Uh, I will uh, hug those that I know, I hope that uh, I meet for the first time, because uh, I think that they are doing uh, the right thing. Uh, the, 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 the thing that is needed, uh, the, the right thing to do at this time. Now, you made Aliyah as a teenager to Tel Aviv. Are you amazed by some of the places in Israel that these current Olim are choosing to live in? Well, you know, uh, if I take a look at uh, Israel in its entirety, uh, from Metula in the north to Eilat in the south, we have an amazing country uh, that can offer, you know, different times, uh, different types of uh, lifestyles. Uh, you can live in a big city. You can live in Jerusalem, which is uh, uh, also uh, similar in its uh, 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 number of inhabitants to Tel Aviv, but is completely different. Uh, you can uh, choose Haifa, a more uh, university type, uh, college type. Uh, uh, a city or a kibbutz or a moshav. Uh, the number of options that Israel offers uh, uh, its new inhabitants is uh, uh, really a myriad of opportunities. You know, M- Ambassador Diana, I have to ask you, you served in the military, of course, uh, and, you, and you now meet, and you'll see on, on Tuesday of next week at the airport, 
plenty of future lone soldiers who are ready to leave their family in their high teenage years and serve almost immediately in the IDF. Are you amazed by that? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, one of my greatest sources of uh, encouragement and pride uh, that I meet here in New York. Uh, actually, uh, I met these uh, brave young men and women a few weeks ago uh, in, the, in an event uh, with our Minister of Immigration Absorption, Minister Landwehr, uh, in uh, Manhattan. Uh, really, every time uh, that I see these brave uh, young Jewish men and women, uh, it brings uh, tears to my eyes, tears of joy, tears of pride. Right. Pretty amazing. Uh, and the nefesh benefesh angle, I mean, you, you, you know that there's been a, a, a quote-unquote organized Aliyah effort, obviously, for many, many decades, but they came in uh, just over 15 years ago and really stepped things up to, uh, to bring it into the modern age, so to speak. Uh, tell me about your impressions about how the organization works. Well, first of all, I uh, love the people. I love uh, my good friend Tony Gelbart. Uh, I love uh, my friend, uh, love and admire my friend uh, Rabbi Yeshua Fass uh, and all the other uh, really uh, extraordinary people that established and run this organization. Uh, I would say it's really one of uh, the organizations that uh, I admire and I can't uh, uh, even think of uh, uh, how could we uh, do our mission without them. Yeah, they are pretty remarkable, and we are looking forward again to being uh, eyewitnesses to this incredible uh, a summer charter flight. We will see you, Bezrat Hashem, Tuesday at the airport, and I'm sure you'll be beaming with pride as you watch. I will not. I never miss that event. You're literally there every time they have a charter flight. Yes, I try to be every time uh, I remember uh, the occasions in which I had to decide whether to go to JFK to farewell to this uh, to, to, to the new Olim or to meet a governor or a senator and uh, I always opted for JFK. Kolakavod, looking forward to seeing you. It's going to be another amazing Aliyah summer. Ambassador Dayan Tadaraba, thank you so much for joining us. Tadaraba. He is Consul General from Israel in New York, Danny Dayan, and as you heard, he would never miss it. It is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Um, being there at Kennedy Airport when all the incredible adrenaline of moving to Israel is so dominant, and at the same time, the mixed emotions as the uh, preda, as the um, separation from family and friends here in the U.S. is taking place at the last minutes. It's really, it, it is some amazing combination. Um, we'll be there, Bezrat Hashem, Tuesday, everybody. Kudos. We salute Nefesh Benefesh for their amazing work and the incredible thing that they continue to do. And uh, we look forward to actually broadcasting from the plane and presenting JM and the AM um, next Wednesday morning from the flight with Nefesh Benefesh. 13 minutes after 8 o'clock, it's JM and the AM. We continue with our series of lectures from Rabbi Beryl Wine. He's talking about Jerusalem geography. Jerusalem geography. Rabbi Beryl Wine Information about his lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. This uh, lecture series, which will uh, take place over, God willing, the next few months, uh, concerns itself with the streets of Yerushalayim. And if you know uh, the story 
of the streets of Yerushalayim, you know a lot. In fact, uh, all of Jewish history can be found in the streets and in the squares and the uh, traffic circles of Jerusalem. Tonight's lecture uh, concerns itself a street, the name of a street. In English, we call it Saladin, the Arabic name, which is the correct name, and which is the name of the street, is Salah Ed Din. And uh, it is a, a street that can be found when you uh, go out of the old city. If you go out Shar Shem, Damascus Gate, you turn right, that street is Suleiman Street, which runs parallel to the wall. We'll talk about Suleiman next Shabbat, uh, next Matzoi Shabbat, God willing. But the first main street that runs perpendicular, in other words, you make a left turn, that street is Salah al-Din, that's Saladin Street. And it's one of the major streets in uh, what is called East Jerusalem, and it's a very ancient street. The street uh, itself dates back to Crusader times, and the name was given after uh, Saladin defeated the Crusaders and captured Jerusalem. And in the usual modesty which pervades our city, he named it after himself. <laughs> I want to take you back a thousand years, just about, but it's all modern current history. It's everything that is happening today in the Middle East. And I think it's important for us to realize that so that we're not always so surprised and so blindsided by events that occur and that we shouldn't think we're so special because these are very old Disputes, wars, violence, and uh, unfortunately, uh, they have never been settled. The basic split in the Muslim world is between the Sunni Muslims and between the Shiite Muslims. That was a split that occurred shortly after the death of Muhammad, and it was a split as is usual in these cases, within the family itself, as to who is entitled to be the successor. Now, succession is probably the main reason for most violence in the world. Who takes over? We read it in today's Haftorah. David HaMelech, Sadunyob and Chagis proclaims himself king. Shlomo is going to be the king. Uh, uh, Yoav sides with Adonio, uh, Yosar sides with Adoniyohu, Tzodok sides with Shlomo. It's a mess because whoever wins, somebody loses. And whoever loses either gets killed, which was usual throughout the world, or in our time will make a different yeshiva for himself. <laughs> But this problem of succession is a basic problem that exists in humanity all throughout the ages. And uh, we cannot expect that it will disappear easily. Now, we're talking about the 12th century, the 1100s. 
and we're going to see how the Jews fit into it, even though uh, they are not apparently the main part of the story. There is in Iraq, what is today Iraq, and then it was all one big conglomerate, the Mesopotamia, there's a city called Tikrit, which has been in the news often. That was Saddam Hussein's city. Now, the population in that part of Iraq is mainly Kurdish. The Kurds are a tribe that comes from Kurdistan, comes from the Russian Caucasus, came south, became converts to Islam, but they are a definitely different, distinct tribe, culture, and they have striven for a thousand years to be independent of the Arabs. Now there's a difference between Arab and Muslim. There are uh, hundreds of millions of Muslims who are not Arabs, but the Arabs claim to be so to speak, the true Muslims, the original Muslims, because they came under the influence of Muhammad directly, and the holy cities of Islam, Medina and Mecca, are in Arabia, or in what today is Saudi Arabia. In the center of Arab rule, and of Muslim rule, therefore, in the world, and the Muslims here are expanding. They control Spain, they control parts of the Balkans. Uh, they have the intent to control Europe by force. It will not be till the 14th and 15th centuries until the Muslims are finally repulsed and driven out of Europe. So today they're coming to Europe in a different form. But uh, it's an old story. In Tikrit are Kurds. Saladin is born in Tikrit to a Kurdish family who are rather recent converts to Islam. There's a second city called Mosul, which all of us also are aware of. Mosul is controlled by a uh, tribe, a king, the Zagribs. They are Arabs. The third major city is Baghdad. Baghdad is the seat of the caliphate, of the, so to speak, the emperor of all of the Muslims. And that is controlled by a tribe called the Fatimids. So we got three players here so far, right? Let's add a few more. The Kurdish tribe are called the Ayubs. They're all named after the original founder of the tribe. So you got the Ayubs, you got the Zagribs, and you've got the Fatmids. In Damascus, in Syria, there's a fourth group that claims that they're entitled to be the Caliph, and they are called the Abbasids. On top of that, if you're not confused now, <laughs> so 
there was an emperor in Iraq in the 8th century whose name was Abdel el-Rahman who was driven out of Iraq and he moved to Spain and in Spain he became the leader of the Muslims and he is very influential in Spanish Jewish life. It is under him that the golden age of the Jews of Spain takes place. So uh, there, in the Muslim world, uh, there are different attitudes towards the Jews. One attitude is tolerant. Not only tolerant, Jews are part of the government. Jews are part of the infrastructure. Uh, The country needs the Jews. The Jews are wonderful. The Christians are the enemy. In another part of the Muslim world, uh, the stream is that the Jews are infidels and stubborn infidels of that. The Jews knew Muhammad and they rejected him. It's the same story that the Christians say that the Jews knew Jesus and they rejected him. And because of that, therefore, at best, Jews are second-class citizens, dimmies, meaning they have very severe restrictions on their participation in society. You cannot build a synagogue uh, uh, that uh, with the grandeur of a mosque or uh, at the height of a mosque Jews have to get off the street uh, when a Muslim passes Jews have to wear special badges special clothing and the Jew is uh, at best allowed to live but not to live comfortably and then there are fanatical Muslims who say that if the Jews don't convert to Islam, they should all be executed. Now you have these streams within Islam, and it varies from place to place, and from time to time, and from circumstance to circumstance. In our time, the whole matter is complicated by the state of Israel and its success because the state of Israel is a Jewish outpost in a vast area of Islam and according to many Islamic theologians it is it has no right to exist no right to be here so it's not a matter of politics and diplomacy it's a matter of faith and religion well the moment that any dispute is elevated to the level of faith and religion, it becomes an insoluble dispute. You cannot solve it. Because then in effect you're saying that uh, the religion of a billion people is wrong. Now, in the Gerstiebel, you could say that. (laughs) But you can't say it in the UN. Now, the uh, Kurds traditionally were tolerant to Jews because they themselves were a minority. They weren't Arabs. Uh, They found themselves uh, uh, in friction many times. And they were Sunnis. 
and the area that they were living in was Shiite and you know there's no fight like a family fight and when the family fight is one of religion also so you see, you see what's going on today right uh, doesn't make any difference half a million people got killed doesn't mean anything because you're doing it for the cause whether the West realizes it or not but uh, the, the war in Syria and in Iraq and the, Iran, the, the whole thing with Iran that's all Sunni Shiite Iran is Shiite ISIS is Sunni that's what they're fighting about they've been fighting for a thousand years and so uh, how to uh, somehow crawl out of this mess well I have exhausted all of my heavenly powers getting the Chicago Cubs into the World Series so I can have no more influence to be able to do anything here but how so if you know the story right if you look back a thousand years it's the same place as Aleppo is going to be sacked uh, Damascus is going to be sacked it's going to be a war in Tikrit and in Mosul and in Baghdad so uh, you know that should give us a little pause as uh, to how we judge the situation or what we can do about it as though this is not sufficient we have another big player in this 12th century the crusaders the Christians from Europe in 1096 the first crusade was proclaimed by the Pope and it came to liberate Jerusalem from the Muslims the Muslims uh, were very anti-Christian and the Christian pilgrims were extorted and executed and all sorts of things and churches were vandalized so they're going to have a crusade they're going to take the whole Middle East and make it Christian and their idea was to conquer the territory and to force the people to become Christians they are the origin of the Arab Christian population now the Arab Christians today are a diminishing breed uh, for instance there was a town here Beit Hanina outside Yerushalayim that was an Arab Christian town the whole town is now in Chile they're not here anymore and it's true throughout the Palestinian Authority uh, territory is that the Arab Christians are a diminishing diminishing group the Crusaders conquered Jerusalem now the Crusaders were terribly anti-Jewish as well and therefore the Jewish population of Jerusalem shrank to almost nothing Godfrey of Bouillon and the other uh, Christian knights uh, massacred the Jews they burned the synagogue down on their heads and uh, the crusaders first crusade was successful conquered a lot of territory so the crusader kingdom uh, all the way to the north included Lebanon 
included parts of Syria. You can see the Crusader fortresses throughout the area until today, the ruins of the Crusader fortresses. And they control the coast, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Tyre, Sidon, all of those were Crusader fortresses. Acre. So you got out of Crusaders themselves, so they're French, they're German, they're Italian, they're all sorts of people who they don't like each other either. And you have conflicting groups and conflicting personalities and conflicting generals. And so there is great infighting amongst the Christian crusaders themselves. So they split the country. So somebody is king of Jerusalem, somebody is king of Gaza, somebody is king of Ashkelon, somebody is king of Ashdod, somebody is king of Tyre. So, and the country cannot support any of this because it has no economy and it has no agriculture. So the first crusade peters out. When it peters out, the Arabs return, the Muslims return, and they begin to push the crusaders out. So the Pope calls for a second crusade which takes place now here in the 1100s. And this crusade comes to uh, reconquer all the places that they lost and to expand the crusader kingdom. The Muslims view this as a uh, direct threat to their religion, to their faith. And therefore, they look for a way somehow to defeat the Crusaders. But since they themselves are so divided, they're never able to put their act together. The only way to put the act together is, so to speak, to be Saddam Hussein. You become the dictator, you kill out anybody that disagrees with you, and then, you know, then whatever you say, that's what goes. So Iraq under Saddam Hussein was a much quieter uh, place than it is today. Now that's not to advocate Saddam Hussein, but it is a pattern of how to view, you know, people view the Middle East as though it's California. (laughs) And, you know, somehow we're going to introduce democracy and and parliamentary government. Everybody's going to agree. Uh, There'll be uh, peaceful changes of government. But if we look back at uh, the last 1,500 years, from the time of uh, Muhammad till today, you know, that doesn't exist. What existed were empires, and the last one was the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, that it ran everything, and if you didn't like it, they killed you. But to impose a system uh, that will meet Western values is a complete misreading of the mindset of the people in this area. So now let's get to the man called Salah 
et din, which we call Saladin. So he's a Kurd. He's born in Tikrit. His father uh, is an official with the Zegrids. And he's a Sunni. And his father and uncle have connections with the Fatmids also. And therefore they rise to, uh, if not power, but they rise to influence. And uh, there's this, uh, his son, Saladin, who is a very brilliant person. Saladin knows mathematics. He knows geography. In a world that was illiterate, he knows a number of languages. He's a, uh, you can't use the word, but in the 12th century, he would be a Renaissance man, right? He is the exception to the rule because of the fact that he has a broad education. He's interested in everything. He's curious. And he's a tolerant person. Now, he's a tolerant person who kills hundreds of thousands of people, but he's a tolerant person. He kills because, you know, you know, because he has enemies that threaten his rule. But as we will see, especially to the Jews, he was the most tolerant ruler that there was. Now, we know of Saladin through the Rambam, through Moshe ben Maimon. Saladin uh, gets an appointment uh, to the army, and he's a general, he's successful in the original wars amongst the Arabs themselves. He defeats the Zegrids, who his his father worked for. He defeats them, and therefore the Fatmids appoint him. He becomes the Grand Vizier of Egypt with his base in Cairo. And Cairo then was uh, Fostad, old Cairo. He will develop it into new Cairo. Now, he uh, is very interested in the fact that there is a large Jewish community in Cairo. The Jewish community in Cairo was a Karaite community, or Karoim, because the Jews also split. Again, because of succession. In the 700s in Babylonia, the Reish Galusa, the head of the exile, died. And he had two sons. And the younger son uh, somehow was chosen by the rabbis to be the successor. And the older son uh, took up, picked up his marbles. And he said, I'm going to be the head uh, the, uh, his brother complained to the caliph so the caliph called him in ready to chop off his head and he said you know uh, the uh, head of the exile is appointed by the caliph how can you contest whom I have appointed and he said I'm, this is not the Jewish religion I'm the head of a different religion and that's how the Karoim were founded and in order to make it a different religion, they rejected uh, the oral law, Torah Shabal Peh. Uh, they created uh, different things, and it's a discussion for a thousand years in Halacha 
how to treat the Karoyim, whether they're treated as Jews or not. Uh, the Karite community is very small today. Hitler treated them as Jews. Uh, the uh, Ben Svi, who was why this is called Beit Knesset Hanasi, because he was the Nasi that uh, really built the institution. Uh, he spent his entire life defending the Karoim and saying that they should be part of the Jewish people. In today's world, because they are relatively so few in number, we don't ask even anymore you know, what you, who you are, what you are. We've been absorbed into the Jewish people. Though there are pockets of charism that exist here in Israel, in certain communities. And uh, the rabbinate, to a great extent, turns a blind eye to the fact. But in this period of time, the 1100s, the Karoyim are a substantial group with a large influence. Uh, and in Cairo, in Egypt, they were the majority. Now this is also a lesson for us because we think that until our time it was always, you know, the great rabbis ran the show and everybody was religious and everything and uh, it all fell apart, you know, in our time. But that also is a fantasy that's not true. And if we recognized it, then we would treat things differently in our world as well. So... The Rambam, when he was 15, the Rambam is born in Cordova in 1135. When he was 15, the fanatical Almohads, who are the sect of Islam that does not tolerate infidels, as I explained before, who said either you convert, you leave, or we're going to kill you. They capture Cordova. The Rambam, his father, his brother, we know very little about his mother, whether she was alive then or not. But he and his father and brother flee and go to Morocco, to Fez. When he gets to Fez, the Almohads take over Morocco. So he goes into hiding. The Rambam lives in a cave for many years in hiding. Finally, he and his father and brother uh, escape Morocco. The Rambam writes that they go to Israel. He wants to go to Eretz Israel. And the Rambam lands in Akko. When he comes to Eretz Israel, he sees that it's impossible for Jews to live in Eretz Israel because of the Crusaders. And especially if you were a rabbi or somebody of notoriety, then you were automatically kidnapped and held for ransom. And um, the, even after the ransom was paid, it didn't necessarily mean that it was over. That was very common, and that's why the Jewish community in the land of Israel was almost non-existent. So the Rambam has to flee from the land of Israel 
and he comes to Cairo. He comes to Cairo, it's a Karaite city. But that's what makes the Rambam the Rambam. So firstly, what he did was he uh, made groups of women that he taught. The Rambam realized that he who has the women has the men too. (laughs) It doesn't work the other way. An error that is also uh, not recognized, unfortunately. I know Rabbi Goldzich today uh, had a uh, Shabbaton for 60 uh, women, secular women. It was their first experience with Shabbat, with seeing religious Jews, etc., etc. And uh, some of them were very prominent women. And he told me that when it was all over and everything, they all said, well, I'm going to go home and talk to my husband. (laughs) So uh, he uh, is able to influence the women. Uh, He uh, introduces them to the laws of Taras HaMeshpocha, of the mikveh, he teaches them kashras according to the rabbinic laws. Slowly the community changes under him. So within 20 years of his arrival, it is no longer a Karaite community, it is a rabbinic community. Meanwhile, the Rambam is writing his great uh, works, Mishnah Torah, etc., the Rambam was supported all of this period of time by his brother, who was a diamond merchant, precious stones, who would uh, travel to the Far East in order to gain the stones and bring them back, and then they were sold on to Europe. The Jews were the middlemen. That's how Jews were always in the diamond business. And the Jews were the middlemen between the, the diamond mines of the Far East and between Europe and the European nobility always was purchasing. His brother was lost at sea on one of the voyages. The Rambam's wife and his two daughters die in a cholera plague which affects Cairo. His father passes away. The Rambam is at a low ebb. He writes of his depression. He is saved by his second wife, who has an Arabic name, Fatima. And she rebuilds him. And they have a child, the great Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam. But the Rambam has to make a living now. He doesn't have a brother that's supporting him, right? The Rambam uh, was always a uh, person that knew everything, that studied everything. In those days, uh, you didn't have to have a license to be a physician. You had to be uh, someone who said that he knows how to cure illnesses and diseases. 
and the Rambam gained the reputation first in the Jewish community as he was very adept at pharmacology and we read the, the Rambam wrote a number of treatises on medicine that we have today he wrote them in Arabic they've been translated into many languages and he uh, today we would say he used alternative medicine and he was uh, he used preventive medicine he was uh, out of the box and he was recommended to the grand by the Jews that were close to the government uh, the grand vizier Saladin had a harem many wives and they were always getting sick mainly because of him <laughs> and so therefore he took the Rambam and he appointed him to be the doctor in the harem and he also he felt he could trust the Rambam in the harem which he could not do with his other doctors the Rambam eventually becomes the personal doctor of Saladin himself now Saladin is the grand vizier which is not the ruler yet but he is a great warrior he is always going to war and he vanquishes his foes uh, he gets rid of the Fatimid dynasty and he supports the Abbasid dynasty the Abbasids therefore make him the Sultan of Egypt so now he's in charge of all of Egypt now he uh, is very disturbed by the crusaders the crusaders uh, at the end of the second crusade uh, attempt to uh, push the Muslims out of Palestine completely and they invade Egypt and in a number of battles he defeats the crusaders and then he expands he takes the war into Syria into Aleppo Aleppo was a bloodbath in which uh, none of the Christians survived and the uh, he always offered terms and if they accepted the terms so then they could live many times he even accepted uh, ransom to let them all go home and between them they are always bribing each other Finally, uh, he uh, establishes his rule not only in Egypt, but in Syria as well. And from Syria, he expands to what is today Iraq, to Mesopotamia, to the entire area. So that in effect, the Sultan of Egypt now becomes the caliph of the entire Arab world. And he's got a Jewish doctor by the name of Moshe bin Maimon. So the Lord has his ways, right? As we are well aware from current events. It's never the way it looks. And... uh, 
he decides uh, that he's going to drive the crusaders out of Jerusalem. Now the crusaders, now you have to remember this, the crusaders controlled Jerusalem for 88 years. The two mosques were churches. The Muslims were not allowed. There were no Jews in Jerusalem. Even a hundred years later, when the Ramban arrives here, he couldn't find the minion in Yerushalayim, he writes. But I mean, if you lived a thousand years ago and somebody had told you there's going to be a Jewish state in a thousand years, and you know, and there'll be... Uh, you know, there'll be uh, 600,000 Jews in Jerusalem. He would say he's crazy. But uh, that's the story. So uh, for 88 years, it's under Christian control. Now, that's what the Muslims say today, by the way. If you listen, they say it. They say that uh, we, La Havdal, are the Crusaders. So he said the Crusaders had Jerusalem for 88 years. And we drove them out. So, you know, you're going to celebrate now 50 years of the reunification of Jerusalem. doesn't mean anything. Because that's the mentality. The mentality is that we did it once, we'll do it again. And uh, that makes it very hard to, uh, what shall I say, to make peace, to come to, uh, to any sort of an arrangement. Because the mindset is not there. The mindset is not there at all. So again, in the Western world, you have the mindset that, uh, even though that is changing too, that we're not going to redraw the borders of Europe anymore. Whatever it was at the end of the Second World War, that's what it is, goodbye. But you see that Putin... uh, he says the Crimea is really Russia and the Ukraine is really Russia. Even though it's uh, many, many years later already. So the passage of time does not necessarily change mindsets. And uh, that's an issue, an issue that uh, we have to contend with, that we have to think about. So in any event... Uh, Saladin uh, conquers many of the crusader fortresses especially in Syria those that were in Iraq those that were in Lebanon those were in the north of Israel Safed etc he conquers them all so that the king of Jerusalem is pretty much isolated because Jerusalem has no uh, it's not easily defensible, and it has no hinterland. It has no way to support it, right? has no river, has no water, has no agriculture, and it has no industry. It's a kaviochal, an artificial city that the Lord created for us. Because all the major cities in the world are built on rivers or on oceans or on means of transportation. On highways, uh, Jerusalem doesn't have any of that. Never had any of that. And the Christian interest in Jerusalem was purely uh, based on religion. On the Christian holy places. And there were all sorts of 
wild things that existed in the Middle Ages regarding, uh, they say, uh, they, you know, they used to sell pieces of wood that said were from the cross on which Jesus was crucified. So that was a big industry. You know, people love, uh, by us too, right? People love these things. So it's cool if you got a piece of the true cross in your house. JM in the AM, it's uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine on Jerusalem Geography. We will, as is our tradition, uh, play this lecture in its entirety at the beginning of tomorrow's program, so you'll be able to hear uh, the ending of this um, presentation by Rabbi, by Rabbi Wine. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com for uh, information. J.M. in the AM with a couple of really important reminders. Number one, on Tisha B'Av itself, we have a couple of events that we are associated with. At 9.15, right after J.M. Sunday, we will present the um, Tisha B'Av program from the New Springville Jewish Center. You're all invited to participate. Men and women invited. It's free admission. 120 Saxon Avenue in Staten Island. At 8.20 is Shacharis, and then starting at 9.15, Rabbi Eliyahu, Sun and Shine, Shlomo Schwartz and Rabbi Moshe Faskowitz will all be explaining Kinnis. Then, Mayor Simcha Siegel and Rabbi Aaron Raps will have thoughts about Tisha B'Av beginning at 12.15. Mincha will be at 1.45. All of this, the entire program, will be available at NachumSiegel.com, so you can watch it. And obviously, you can listen on the website, on the app, and on our listen line. Information about this, about coming to the event, 718-983-8063, 718-983-8063. Eight zero six three. Charlie Harari, he'll anchor the Project Inspire program. We need you stacking, stepping up and taking responsibility. Right now, it's starting Tisha B'Av at 7 p.m. If that changes, we will let you know. It may start a drop earlier, but 7 p.m. is when it's scheduled right now. The Tisha B'Av live streaming talk show to last two hours of Tisha B'Av with Charlie Harari and company. It's free of charge. NahumSegal.com, of course, will have it. Information, email, radio at projectinspire.com. Radio at projectinspire.com. Uh, don't forget, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall will take place at um, at 2 p.m. Bring your towels and fill in. Mincha, 1st Avenue, 43rd Street will take place at 2 p.m. Um, we leave. Uh, we're here Monday and Tuesday. Monday and Tuesday, we're here at JM&M. And then, of course, uh, we head to Israel. We'll fly with Nefesh Benefesh, and that JM&M broadcast from the plane will be on Wednesday morning. We will celebrate at Latrun Yom NCSY, and that will be part of that will be Thursday morning's JM in the AM, and of course we'll be with the NCSY summer programs in Beit Meir, and that will be Friday's JM in the AM. Uh, we'll also have a program from the Barkan Winery, which you'll hear on Thursday, and as we've been saying, we're back at Hask for Hask Experience Day uh, up in Parksville, New York, and that's going to be Sunday, the twenty ninth of. July. So an amazing, amazing week coming up even after the Tisha B'Av week is over. Um, if you want to include a shout-out to somebody at Hask or a shout-out to somebody at, at NCSY in Israel, no problem. Just uh, email us, nachum at nachumsegel.com. Uh, put in the subject line, shout-out Hask or shout-out NCSY. And um, 
send it to us by email, nachum at nachumsegel.com, nachum at nachumsegel.com. And we will try to include, uh, knowing us, we will include your message uh, during our broadcast, which will be a lot of fun. All right? My brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com. On the NachumSegal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a Tuesday morning edition. Rabbi Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com. Thanks for tuning in. Tomorrow we're back on a Wednesday morning starting at 6 a.m. as our nine days format continues. Tell the Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.